and welcome to the Climbing Consulting Podcast with me, your host, Nick Sinnott. I created Climbing Consulting to give people like you who want to accelerate their careers in consulting access to the best mentors in the field through interviews with leading figures in the industry. In each episode, I interview someone who's made it to the top to find out their tips, advice and strategies so that you can achieve the same success. Today's guest is Dom Morehouse. Dom is a business advisor, angel investor and serial entrepreneur. Back in 2004, Dom founded Morehouse Consulting, which he grew from nothing to a business that he sold for £20 million less than five years later. After leaving Morehouse, Dom founded his advisory business, The Five-Year Entrepreneur, to provide mentorship, guidance and coaching for owners of professional services firms on how they could achieve the same success that he did. As well as this, Dom is an advisor and board member to multiple professional services firms and is currently focusing on his latest venture, Method Grid, which you can check out at methodgrid.com, which is something we discuss further in the podcast. We covered so much in this episode as we explored everything from how Dom founded Morehouse, and we go really deep into this one, onto where so many firms go wrong when it comes to culture, and even Dom's advice around maintaining your health, and I'd say almost more importantly, your relationships while building your career in consulting. It doesn't matter whether you're currently running your own firm, thinking of going out on your own, or simply want to find out how to have a successful consulting career and a successful life at the same time. There's something in here for everyone. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you do too. So without further ado, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Don Morehouse. Hi there, Don. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Nick. Great to, to be here. And thank you very much for having me to your lovely home in Bath today. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. You've brought the sun, so yeah, come more often. <laughs> so to kick us off, uh, it'd be great just to give our listeners a bit of background on you for maybe those people who don't know you as well. Um, can you give us an overview of your career so far and, and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, so uh, I guess the pithy summary of that would be uh, slightly um, you know, unusual in so much as I... Uh, well, I didn't actually go straight to university. I sort of took a good gap year. I didn't really know what I was sort of getting up to at that age and um, had a bit of a foray even looking at uh, architecture. It didn't work. Well, I realized that wasn't for me. I went into then uh, an IT role, uh, realized I probably should think about going to university, went off to university, then realized at university I didn't want to spend my 20s talking to a box. So I essentially then took another tangent and joined uh, the Royal Marines. So my 20s was you know, as, a, as an officer in the Royal Marines. Took the decision at the end of my 20s to leave. Um, so, that, uh, you know, had me at sort of 30 year old and I went out, you know, then I would, I essentially went into consulting. I joined a Deloitte consulting, uh, and then four years after that, you know, having always had the sort of entrepreneurial itch, I guess I set up my own venture in 2004, uh, eponymously called Morehouse Consulting, which was largely a complete dearth of um, marketing imagination. Uh, and, um, you, you know, again, and I guess we'll unpack this, you know, with sort of fairly deliberate intent, um, built a business that was uh, sold just shy of five years later and was kept on in that business for a number of years, as is typically the case, you know, with an earnout arrangement. Uh, that took me to, what well, takes us to 2011. So I guess, you know, since then, my career is much more um, eclectic, and, you know, and I have a number of number of roles, you know, number of fingers in pies. And again, I, I guess we can sort of unpack that, but it's a much more, uh, more wide inch deep type portfolio of, of matters now. So yeah, that's the broad, quick sweep through my career. No, thanks a lot for that. And 
funny you mentioned around entrepreneurial from an early age i think i saw a picture on your website of you washing cars with a friend when you were 11 was that a Oh, One of well, your first yeah. businesses? Or? No, good spot. Yeah, I mean, that was true. <laughs> I haven't thought about that for a while. That was, I think I must have been about 12 or 14, you know, 13, 14 in those photos. And, uh, no, that was a company called DL Starwash. I set up with a good Italian friend of mine at the time called Leonardo. And, uh, yeah, no, we had Finest European car washes. Fun, fun and games, knocking on neighbors' doors, getting them to <laughs> trust us. Uh, I have no idea how good we were. <laughs> um, there's probably a few cars with scrapes down the sides. <laughs> Fantastic. So one thing I think I want to start off on from what you've just said, uh, and it's something that I know to the point you mentioned around being fairly deliberate in how you set up Morehouse. I think planning both your life and your business, I know from our previous conversations, is something that you've been very deliberate in. I, I think you planned how you wanted your 20s to look like you said. You didn't want to talk to a box. You went into the Marines. You then came out of the Marines. And I understand you you spent some time deliberately playing how you wanted to shape your life, how you wanted that to look in, say, 10 years' time. How did you do that? How did you... What was that process for you? No, good question. And actually, um, uh, the, the, uh, the question was something I had to address recently and sort of uh, self-reflect on a little. And I, I um, was asked very kindly to, to talk at a TEDx recently, and it, the audience was essentially sixth formers. And effectively, that was the question I had to try and unpack, which is quite an uh, intimidating brief to be given, but it was essentially, you know, how do you, you future-proof your career, your life, when, you know, particularly when you're, uh, I guess, you know, still coming out of education. And I kind of reflected on it, actually. I, I can remember when I was at university and my second year, I, I went off on a, a, a fantastic expedition to Zimbabwe. Uh, I met some super interesting people, and, and it was run by a number of staff that were also very interesting folk. And I remember at the time just thinking, you know, I'm not 100% sure what I want to do post-university, but I kind of almost need a guiding, uh, I don't know what, the guiding principle, as it were, and, or, or principles. And uh, one that became increasingly clear to me at the time and uh, was, uh, and, and, and I kind of, I almost coined a phrase for it, which was, whoever, whoever has the most stories wins. Yeah? You, you kind of need to understand what ultimately you personally are driven by and it might you know it's clearly everybody's got their own different kind of guiding maxim but there was a there was a key thing in my head at the time with whoever has the most stories wins you know if you had to really strip it all down great times with families and friends you know that, that's what it's all about so i kind of remember at the time thinking well i'm going to graduate soon with you know an it degree and uh, i could go off into the world of it and indeed actually when i did get when i did graduate i had some very very attractive highly paid propositions put in front of me but I just thought there's this other world I've just seen and um, this expedition was run by a number of you know officers and from the armed forces and it wasn't even something I'd even contemplated prior to that point I thought well the, these these folk have got a really interesting life and um, maybe that's something I should look at and I'm you know I just went back to that kind of mantra of whoever has the most stories wins so I was faced with you know do I go off into the world of IT or do I go off into the in this instance uh, military career no-brainer that's where I need to <laughs> I, you know, I need to hold myself true to that principle. So I guess that was the first point at which I genuinely kind of reflected and gave some sort of structure to what I was doing. I remember, you know, sitting on a rock in Zimbabwe for hours and thinking, what, you know, what do I do in the next five, ten years? Uh, and, and then came off that rock with some clarity. Do you remember um, any of the, the questions you asked yourself? I know we're going back a while here. Were there, were there any specific questions in that? Well, I think it was back to this point, Nick, of, you know, when fundamentally, what do you want to hold yourself honest to? And what is what is that summary principle almost that kind of helps you 
like almost like the Occam's razor type idea, you know, strip everything down to kind of making a decision. Uh, and, and that, you know, that just became something for me at that particular time in my life that resonated. When I was talking to this topic to the, uh, the six formers recently, balance, you know, uh, planning around balance in your life, I think is another key aspect um, we can unpack. Uh, but, but, you know, but fundamentally, you know, you've touched on it, planning, you know, and I, I've said before that a lot of people spend more time planning their summer holiday than they do their own, their own lives, and, and, and lives in the broadest sense of work and careers, just one aspect of that. And, you know, and, and actually when, you know, fast forward, when I left the forces and sort of set off, I was conscious of the fact that I probably had a personality that could meander, that could potentially, you know, it was, it was almost, um, when you come out of the forces, particularly where it's been a very structured, privileged existence in, in that a lot of things get done for you, you know, it's almost like being the child in the sweet shop when you come out. There's so many choices. It's, it's dizzying. You have to clearly make some decisions. And I kind of knew that I had the kind of personality that could get a little bit sort of um, distracted by multiple kind of options and, and effectively meander. And actually knowing that, what I did to sort of mitigate it was uh, an exercise I would strongly encourage actually which is I spent a few days just writing down what I wanted to achieve over the next sort of 5, 10, 15, 20 years um, across a whole sweep of aspects of my life and, and as I say work and career just being one aspect and that document actually was what kept me honest to setting up my own business because you know I joined a big firm you work ridiculously long hours you get caught up in it, you go off down a path. It's easy to forget sometimes the sort of structure and the goals that you do set. But having that artifact in my drawer and every six months or so I'd pull it out and have a look, you know, that's what kept me honest to even setting up on my own business. It kept me honest to a number of other aspects as well. But sorry, I've gone off a long way from your original question. No, no, I think, you're, there, I think you're right on the question. Yeah. And, and something, especially around that taking time out to write, write down your goals, something... I know personally that I've sometimes found challenging when writing down my goals is actually how do you how do you know what you want in terms of I'm trying to think of the best way to word this given especially the social media generation we live in now it's, it's very easy to say I want five Ferraris and a mansion how maybe that's what you had on your list and you know that's what drove you to set up more so I don't know but how did you set goals that at the time you felt really got to the heart of what you did actually want for, for yourself and for your family? I guess, you know, that's looking at it uh, deliberately broadly. And whilst this is a sort of fairly cliched point, it, you know, again, it really amazes me how few people actually do. But as I, I came back to, you know, um, one of the primary kind of principles would be whoever has the most stories wins. You know, I actually have a sort of an aspect of that plan, which is stories and experiences, you know, and then, you know, I want to make sure I do at least X amount of trips or whatever they may be to, to keep that kind of aspect um, true. Um, I guess career-wise, uh, if I took myself back to that point, I guess my ambition was I want to run my own uh, business. I've got a broad understanding of where it is, but I'm not, you know, I don't have enough granularity on the answer, but I, I want to be off on an entrepreneurial venture within X years was probably how I framed it at the time. And, you know, I want therefore in the intermediary time to sort of arm myself to be best able to do that and, and to close down on the question of what form of entrepreneurship I embark on. And so you kind of strip back, don't you, from a sort of a high level goal to sort of the next steps that help you answer some of the gaps still, still therein.
But, you know, importantly, also just where do I want to live with my family? What kind of level of fitness do I want? Finances, you know, I mean, it's me personally, I'm not particularly materialistic, but clearly there are freedoms that get um, purchased with a certain level of wealth that I guess I was after just those freedoms. Yeah, and, and all, you know, from a, into a broader sweep of, you know, what kind of role would I like to play in terms of just community aspects? You know, what personal development do I want to kind of continue with? It, I've recently finished a, an open university degree. I think I probably set the seeds for that 10 years ago. It's, it's, it's looking at it across that whole wide, you know, that wide sweep. Fantastic. That's a really helpful guide to some of the headers that both I am and my listeners can use. And so you created this plan, and obviously part of it was entrepreneurism, starting your own business. What was it that led you into consulting? How did you make that transition from the military into consulting? It's a reasonably well-worn path in so much as, uh, I guess, a number of folk enter the city or, you know, they go into consulting from that, from that career. Um, I guess at the time there were probably a number of fortuitous kind of uh, conversations I had that maybe pointed me in that direction. I do remember actually, I sort of, I interviewed, um, uh, I got an a unsolicited uh, contact from Goldman Sachs actually. And uh, I mean, literally, I remember one of my final sort of weeks in, you know, in the Royal Marines. And, uh, you know, I, the reason why I remember it is because we never used the telephones. <laughs> and all of a sudden this phone I had in my office rang and I was like, well, who's true? Who's phoning me? We never, we never used the phones. And, it, and it, bizarrely, it was somebody from Goldman Sachs saying, uh, um, we've heard that you're leaving and might you be interested in investment banking? And I, I knew very little about the world of investment banking at the time. But I, did, you know, I knew enough about Goldman Sachs that I should be taking that conversation quite seriously. And you know, I had a number of, number of interviews with them. And it kind of made me curious about that world. Um, they were probably more curious about me and why I was so indifferent to the conversations. But I, I, I kind of realized exploring that, that probably wasn't for me. Um, and conversely, you know, at that point, I'd had a number of chats in the consulting world. I think uh, aspects of it played much more to my strengths. And particularly uh, the, the area that I joined, the professional area I joined was involved in complex planning, complex transformation. And I guess it poured heavily on the sort of type of rigor and structure that you will have as, a, as an officer coming out of the, the forces. And were there any... Any potential concerns you had when you made that move? Anything that you felt you had to upskill quickly, let's say, when you landed in Deloitte that maybe was different from the military? No, for sure. I mean, you know, I think uh, anybody that leaves the forces would be um, not telling the whole truth if they didn't say there's a degree of anxiety that goes with that transition. I mean, I'd done eight years, so it's still relatively, relatively short term. But, you know, you can imagine when you, somebody leaves after 16 or, you know, 22 years. But even so, you know, as a still relatively young man, there's a sort of sense of, God, I've, I've probably left this too late. You know, I mean, everybody else that's been doing this has been, is eight years ahead of me. I mean, how on earth am I going to catch up with somebody that's got eight years head start? What tends to be the case is you, you kind of shut up and listen for the, well, I'd certainly pe encourage people to do that anyway, and, and, and then just absorb as much as you can in those early uh, months and years. And I think, I, I, if I'm honest, I hit a point, and I guess it was probably around one year in, where I, confidence issue was completely resolved. You know, I realized, if, if I'm honest, that there's, there's a hell of a lot of blaggers <laughs> that are out there. And uh, once you pick up the lexicon and the language, you know, conversely, actually coming from the military meant that I had a very different backstory. And that actually was very helpful in a lot of client situations and contexts. And I think, uh, you know, I was able to sort of progress some issues where colleagues of mine who'd been in consulting from day one were probably a little bit blind to. I, I should say, actually, I, that transition was massively helped by me. I did a, an open university MBA at the time. So as I 
traversed out of the Royal Marines and and into Deloitte, I was I was sort of getting into the back end of that MBA, and that was that was hugely helpful from a you know at least from the language perspective and having enough insight into different technical areas that I knew I I knew when I was being bluffed by somebody. And you just touched on it around things that potentially you could bring from the military that your peers had been consulting for those eight years didn't have. I think there, there's a lot in um, sort of the forces around strategy, tactics, how you lead teams that is equally applicable in business as it is on a battlefield. What were those sort of key skills that you thought, right, these things that I've learned through my training as an officer that really did help in consulting, be it Deloitte or be it as you, you sort of went on to found Morehouse? To a degree, it's, it's difficult to sort of self-diagnose some of that, but I, I, I guess, I, and actually, I'm, I'm probably better off now reflecting on that than if you'd asked me at the time, I would have, I would have struggled. But I mean, for sure, the sort of the training and experience you get in just deciphering a problem and looking at all the different options and formulating a coherent plan it brings multiple dimensions together. Make sure that that whole sort of coherency is there you know that that's kind of bread and butter stuff for you know the officer training that really does set you up i guess for structured thinking and um well packaged communication the other bit that it does and it's probably more by osmosis uh is 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 a sense of what it is to work in a high performing team and uh you know i've i've, I've touched on this in some of the blogs i've written and it, it's sort of really uh I, well, it didn't strike me at the time. And the point I'm sort of trying to make here is I just I just assumed everybody knew this, that everybody knows how to build and be a part of a high-performing team because I'd had the immense privilege of being in one of the most high-performing teams in my mind that there is, certainly in the military domain. Um, and just being a member of it, what it sort of imbues in you is sort of learn, you know, I, I guess just by osmosis, really. So I just naturally took that into my own uh, work and ventures. Um, and it's now, I guess, only with hindsight looking back that I can see that just that 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 piece of just how you coalesce a group of people to do, you know drive to one common purpose is is eighty percent of the answer often when you're building a building a firm. So yeah, that I guess the you know structured thinking is absolutely a key part. But the the building and being part of a high performing team, I think, is another really critical part of it. And definitely, it's a topic that I, I really want to come on to later because, like you say, you, you've written a lot of blogs on it. I, I think you credit a lot of your success at Morehouse with being able to do that, as you just highlighted. One one thing that I think is interesting in the the phase of your life that you spent at Deloitte. What, firstly, what what grade did the the program you went in at put you on? I assume you did you just go in on the graduate program? Was there a sort of military program? I'm just trying to for our listeners. Help yeah, them that's get a good question actually. Where uh, you were? Super, and I'm going to have to rack my memory. I, I'm from from memory. I think I went in as what they would have called a senior consultant, but it would have been, you know, where they put in all their uh, mature hires and effectively, yeah, you weren't far up ahead of the, uh, you know, the sort of graduate hires, but just just a notch above, <laughs> yeah. And then you spent, you were about four years there. So when you left, you got to, what grade was that? So I, was, manager, I, 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 was, I was a manager and they were sort of talking to me about becoming a senior manager, yeah. So something that, from listening to other interviews you've done, I, I found quite interesting is you you highlighted that you obviously went to Deloitte, you wanted to learn the skill set. You also, you, you had reached a point partly due to your life plan prompting you, but equally in yourself knowing that you had got what you wanted out of it. You, you had the skills you needed to go and set up your own business, whatever that may be. What it led to was obviously Morehouse. How, how did that work? Was it that 
through your time there, you realized you needed skills A, B, and C, and you wanted to acquire them? Or was it more organic than that? That's a great question. And, and I'm probably going to sort of sort of unwire a little bit what I've said about you know, my sort of uh, structured planning. I, I, I think I sort of generally, uh, you know, essentially put in my own mind, which is, you know, when I came out of the forces, what you do have at that time is, and maybe this is another point, actually, from your previous question, there's is huge amounts of confidence and, you know, youthful vim. And, and, and I was very close, actually, to going straight out into a commercial venture and, you know, entrepreneur, potentially with some other uh, colleagues at the time. And I, Just I out of interest, what, what, what were you thinking about? Oh, uh, no, uh, good question. I'm going to have to wreck my... It was a sort of um, more down the line of high-performing teams, actually, and, and facilitating high-performing team sort of workshops in organizations. And, uh, and yeah, that was, that was certainly one option. Uh, and, and it should be said, actually, uh, colleagues of mine who did go off on that are doing fantastically, fantastically well. Um, no, so I kind of, you know, for me, it was more um, a confidence point or, or commercial point, I should say, which is, you know, I knew I had confidence probably too much. What I, what I had absolutely zip of was any commercial now sort of experience. And I just, I think, generally wanted to sort of make sure I understood the kind of lie of the land, you know, commercially. So, yeah, that, that would probably be the, the, the summary kind of objective I had. I, I've got to say the other key thing that it did, albeit I didn't probably preempt this uh, at the time, was, of, of course, you know, you're scanning the kind of commercial uh, landscape for the opportunities and, you know, what you believe that to be, whether the market is, is right for whatever you seek to entrepreneur in. But the other massive piece I think a lot of people underestimate, and, and, and this experience certainly did is, for me, is to, is to understand the kind of, you know, the supply side of that equation. So if successful, what, where do you find great, talented people? And just being out in the world and working with other people, um, you know, just gave me a much better sense of how I would, would, would you know, recruit that kind of talent you know, were I to be successful. And did you find, obviously, I, I know you uh, ended up with taking some colleagues you had met at Deloitte and persuading them to come and join you, which I'm keen to explore. Is it the same skill set in, say, a consulting environment that leads to high performance teams as in uh, the Marines? Or were there different skills that led to those high performing teams in different environments? Okay, so two parts of the question. And the <laughs> first part, I, I am way, way beyond any kind of legal implications for <laughs> um, solicitation. So of we, staff, we can edit that out if you want. Yeah, no, no, I mean, no, please don't, don't, don't edit it out. But, but it, I, I absolutely um, would emphasize as well, I, I, I didn't, you know, and, and, uh, and A, I didn't need to because. Uh, it was important to me, actually, and uh, you know, I don't want this conversation to be a bland sort of pop at you know large co. Uh, you know, Deloitte actually, you know, f fantastic organisation. You, you know, hugely talented people working there. What it did do though was when I did set up, there's a number of people I guess were tracking me <laughs> and were were keen to sort of just embark on a completely different type of career. You know, would would clearly get in touch, but um, we never needed to. Uh, and solicit and, and and to be honest just as a principal point i wouldn't have been comfortable ever doing that anyway you know i do think there are some uh, some sort of standards you kind of you, you work to on that front so that you know just putting that one aside yeah, so sorry, you, that, you that's can my poor research so <laughs> um, Doc so you can, would you, never do that you, you can you can leave it in if you need to um no so the the, the broader part of the question about sort of uh teams uh, do you know what there are huge general there are generalizations that i think are almost more powerful than the sort of the, the sort of refinement of teams, you know, of course, each team has a slightly different uh, need, but the um, the much more important aspect is, you know, what what commonalities there are between great, you know, military endeavours, great, you know, sporting endeavours, great, you know, commercial endeavours. And I, 
I, I think they're more interested. And again, we can unpack this in, yeah, down the line, but um, holding myself back from going too deep into this initially, Nick, because I think we do do it in stages. But, you know, fundamentally, initially, all you're looking to get on, as the old cliche goes, onto the bus is, is the right stuff initially. There is a largely overplayed piece about talent in this regard, in my mind. Um, of course, you need certain requisite qualities you know if it's in the marines you need somebody who ultimately is going to be able to carry a bergen for days on end and when he gets to the other end is able to shoot straight and you know hit a target at 300 meters and every every craft is going to have its technical foundations or you know you're looking for people who at least got the ability to train themselves to that level of proficiency consultancy you know clearly you're looking for a lot of smarts the ability to be uh, able to interpersonally you know, be interpersonable to be able to present those, uh, to do that in a structured, you know, way. Clearly, there's a number of aspects of, you know, a number of areas of competence. But fundamentally, in both instances, you want fantastically collaborative, collegial team players. And I was looking for that, really. I was looking for people that sort of shared those similar values that you knew would be driven by joining a team and, 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 and enjoyed that sort of team ethos. So, yeah, I guess that was carrying over again, you know, from the, from mm. the Marines. And so then I think that brings us quite nicely up to actually your decision to to start Morehouse. And one thing I think, especially as you're jo- if you're joining a firm, say you know, say it's reasonably established, providing people do things right, they, they seem to self-perpetuate. Something I think people get a, a lot less sight of is the early days of firms, you know, unless there are people who are working like your colleagues when you first started would have. Be really interested to understand the steps you actually took to, to set up Morehouse um, and almost the early year or years, how you went from Don Morehouse to a team of, I don't know, let's say five or 10. No, sure. Um, so so the, the initial step would have been opening the drawer out, looking at this life plan and again, sort of thinking, oh, you know, I've really got to do this or, 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 or stop talking about it. You know, and you'd be in a place in your life where you're going to dinner party saying, yeah, one day I'm going to set up my own company. I remember, you know, having the thought of, if I don't do this in the next six months, then I have got to stop, you know, boring friends with the, the, the sort of talk of it. So triggered by the conscious uh, being, uh, being pricked by reading it again, I took a week off of work from the large company I've discussed and I literally just locked myself in my small office at the time. It was right up in the roof of my house and I penned a business plan. And that's a really interesting exercise in itself. And, I, you know, I've talked about this uh, when I run, a, I run an annual event now for sort of entrepreneurs in a similar place. And I, I often find myself describing this story. But in the fashion that we've just talked about, in a very structured way, it went through the different aspects of it. And I built out a plan of what this business would look like over five years. I also set myself very deliberately the goal of getting it to a point of value. So I had an option on that value within five years. And we can talk about that a bit more in a, in a moment as to why. But um, so there was this very um, structured artifact that kind of came came to bear. It, and, and you go through some interesting sort of emotional places doing that. And I, you know, I'll tell you where I went through because I'm sure your listeners may be in a similar place. Which I, at points where you have crashing doubt, moments of self confidence, doubt. And I'm, I found myself describing a firm in whatever it was five years time that say had 25, 30 people working into it. And I was like. Who am I kidding? I don't even have my first client. I wouldn't even know the first in person to bring on. And yeah, I'm painting this rich picture of this end point. And, you know, you almost feel like you're, 
I, I don't know, you know, almost like a little schoolboy that's kind of, you know, just naively painting something out and, uh, you know, it doesn't, it, it doesn't have any kind of credibility to it. I cannot tell you, though, how magically potent that artifact was and became. You know, we can sort of, again, we can... We can well, please, yeah, why was well, it? Well, for a number of reasons. Well, first and foremost, because it absolutely crystallised my intent. And, you know, literally, come the Friday of that week, you know, and on the Friday afternoon, I had then, you know, set a bank account up and commissioned an accountant and done all that sort of, you know, boring, le uh, you know, sort of legal incorporation aspect. It gave me the confidence over that weekend to step back in on Monday and say, you know, with absolute 100% conviction, thanks for a great few years at Deloitte, but, you know, I've, my, I've, my journey is, is heading off elsewhere. So first and foremost, it did that. And it, I guess it cemented in me that you know, I, I, have, I have a baseline now. I can sort of at least march on this. Of course, you know, you, you meet the real world. There's a huge amount of sort of variables then that you're up against. But I tell you, the other real powerful, there are many powerful bits about this, which is, well, first and foremost, when you do get the opportunity to grow, you know, and I, I very fortunately had a, a first engagement that enabled me to bring in a small team. We put a team of um, four of us initially, it grew quite quickly into um, Transport for London, actually was, was a first key client. And at this point, you can imagine the conversation where I'm, you know, uh, speaking to people to say, you know, would you come and join me? Like, you know, who are you? You know, you're a one-man band and, you know, what, what am I joining? And actually being able to say, well, read my my business plan and see the kind of considered thought I've given to the kind of firm and I want to build, the kind of values it carries, the kind of place I want to be in three, four, five years' time and the kind of work we're going to do. I, you know, it was a massively powerful um, recruitment asset for nothing else because it, I think, you know, genuinely helped, particularly in the early stages, me assuage people that, you know, I wasn't just making it up as I was going along. So you so, would give this to prospective yeah, buyers, you'd say, check out my business plan. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, again, uh, this is a little bit idiosyncratic of me, I think, but the, the, a key principle for me was everybody should see that plan in my firm. So when, you know, the firm grew and we evolved into annual planning cycles where the whole firm would be involved in updating and refining the plan, you know, it was really important to me that everybody saw that right down to the, you know, the, the nitty gritty of the P&L and, you know, the financial um, KPIs, etc. And I, I do want to come on to that. And I I think there's going to be, to your point around who has the most stories wins, I think there's going to be a great story around TFL and how you got your four people. I wanted just to hold on the planning element for a moment, uh, mainly for my listeners, again, if, if they are like you sitting there as a manager in any consulting firm, they take this week off. What are, what are the key things that they should capture in the plan? What were the sections that really lived on past that sort of first week for you versus the ones that fell away conversely yeah, in some ways that structure largely survived um what i did at, yeah, I, yeah what, no what, no, what no sure you're going to test my memory because <laughs> what, what i did at the time actually is i, I you know i was reading pretty uh, avariciously around uh, you know business planning and i think um you know there's loads of books out there there's one actually i do remember that i, I thought was really useful and, and i'll probably forget the author's name now but you can check this and put it maybe in the notes but richard yeah. richard stutely kind of comes to mind but the book was called something like the the definitive business plan. Yeah, so if that's still in print, that was a, that, I remember that was a very well articulated reference point. It's, it's, it's um, fairly sort of grounded stuff, this, isn't it? So absolutely assess the market. What, what did I see the market doing in terms of the sort of growth for the area that I was positioning my firm into? How was that market fragmented? You know, what were the factors that were driving that growth? 
looking at the competition, you know, there's also, there's always a bit of analysis as to just how competitive the, the landscape is and genuinely without sort of whimsical thinking, how do you think you will fare when you land in that supply side? So, you know, that's the kind of uh, environmental analysis, I guess, up front, um, you know, a whole load of, well, what is the proposition that I seek to land? How does that decompose into sort of subservice areas? Um, a whole load of planning around the organizational build. I, and a great book, actually, I would highly recommend. I don't think it's ever really been surpassed is um, David Meister's uh, Managing the Professional Service Firm, particularly around how successful professional service firms um, develop leverage. And again, a hugely misunderstood or not uh, or not known <laughs> concept. But you've got to understand the sort of organizational and economic leverage you're building in a firm. And if you get an understanding of that from day one, which I did, you know, I was doing this when I hadn't even started, I worked that leverage concept through into how I saw the organization growing, both in terms of human beings, but in terms of, you know, financial metrics. So there's a whole load of analysis on that front. The other a huge advantage you have is you can start to paint the, you know, the kind of company you want, you know, what sort of values it carries, you know, what's the end vision, you know, what are the key objectives you're seeking to achieve, you hold yourself about it true to. And then, of course, there's a whole load of financial analysis that you've ultimately got some Excel spreadsheet on the side crunching away. Uh, you know, and I guess, you know, the, the, the sort of typical final section of such a piece is, you know, is, is the risks and, and, and how you see yourself mitigating those going forward. And what sort of, I think that bit's quite interesting, actually, that the risks... Maybe if we fast forward it to now, like you mentioned, you run retreats for entrepreneurs who were like you back then. You have a number of guides on the topic. What are the sort of risks that people need to to be really mindful of if they're setting out on this sort of journey? I mean, it's true. Big question in that, you know, it's it's entrepreneurial. Yeah, I mean, entrepreneurial by definition is, uh, you know, you're taking huge risk. And I, I guess if, you, if I framed it, though, and put, uh, put it into context, so why would it be... 34, 35, 35 at the time, probably two of my three children had come along by then, you know, got a mortgage to pay, mouse to feed, you know, fundamentally, I mean, um, security of future income stream is where you are. And, I, you know, I guess where I was, I didn't have huge savings. I think what I had uh, done in my mind was position those savings to say, well, that gives me a runway and it gives me a runway of X months. If after those X months, my entrepreneurial venture just hasn't come to anything, what does that mean? Well, it probably means I need to kind of put my hands up in the air, say, this probably wasn't for me. And, you know, I head back into the world of employment. But this is a really key point, Nick, I think. And, you know, what, what's really lost at that point? I, and I guess this is where I landed, which is nothing is lost at that point. In fact, as an employer now down the line, I, I would employ somebody every day who had shown the spark to go off and do that, even if it hadn't actually worked out. I think it talks volumes to the kind of self-drive and proactivity of, of, of you know, that individual. So for me, I kind of thought if it doesn't work out, ultimately, you know, I'll burn through my savings and I'll go back into the world of employment. But, you know, I was pretty confident I'd find another job. I might take a few steps backwards. But, you know, in the grand schema, that for me was my frame on on, on initial risk. Does that answer your yeah, question? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and, and I think we'll come back to, to the business planning in a moment. But, but you've touched on, I think, two really important points there. Um, and I think we can take them in whatever order you'd like. I think the first one was around you had, you, you had a young family at the time. Um, and I, just through general conversations with others in the industry, very often hear people say something along the lines of, I would love to do that or would have loved to do that, but 
oh, I can't because I've got a young family. And then also that becomes with a perception of life uh, requirement. So, oh, I can't do it because I've got to pay school fees, mortgage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You would have been in, in that same point. And I think that's the first, let's start there. And then we'll come on to, I think for me, the, the age one, which I think, especially nowadays with you know Facebook showing 21 year old entrepreneurs driving Ferraris and Lamborghinis, there's almost this implicit perception that if you're over 25, you're done and go and go and just do your office job for the rest of your life. I think 34, so sorry, 35, you said, didn't you? While still very young, nowadays almost people are looking at as if it's ancient. And those to me are two really interesting areas to explore. I don't know which one is more no. interesting for you. Well, you're listening to that, Nick. I'm glad I did it when I did it. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> maybe I, I over that. A bit. No, no, sure. I do. I absolutely uh, accept the sort of the premise of that. I, all I would say is, you know, I think um, there's absolutely there's no ages in this conversation at all. And I think, you know, I would encourage people, regardless of age, of you know, if you've got the entrepreneurial witch, you know, I, I've certainly seen people successful, you know, coming at it at all, all stages in their sort of you know career starting point. The key point, you know, I've sort of talked about this before, which is, you know, there probably is, being honest, there probably is a sweet spot in terms of entrepreneurial in, in the professional services space. Clearly that, you know, there are many other um, facets of entrepreneurship, but in, in the professional services space, you know, there's this kind of Venn diagram overlap of having sufficient sort of experience, gravitas, network to initially um, be reasonably confident in selling and backing your, yourself. And that's ultimately, again, back to that risk question, what you're doing in the, in the nascent first steps is, you know, are you confident pitching and selling yourself and the expertise you, you know, you, you, purport, you know, purport to bring to market? And, and that comes by dint of some, some years, and, you know, you, you need to have been around the block a little bit to, to pull that off. And I, you know, I think that would be aspect number one. Aspect number two is you've got enough energy in the tank to work unbelievably hard and you know let's not kind of delude your, your listeners because it is really hard work you've got enough energy in the tank to to do that and, and again there's no there is no um fixed age bound to this but i guess for a lot of people that tends to be you know they're coming back into the 20s early 30s and they're still got energy in the tank you know so they're kind of in that sort of you know 20 to 40 years old but as i say there are a myriad of exceptions either side of that that bracket, but that tends to be the two things that kind of conjoin to give you your sweet spot. Okay. So that's really useful on the age thing. And I think like you say, it does vary by industry, definitely. Coming back to then the sort of your life circumstances. Yeah. And no, so, um, so where I was, and, and this is a fascinating area. So where I was, you know, I guess I, so I'd written this plan and my, I, myself sort of uh, computation on it was, I knew it was going to be hard work and I knew that that was going to come with sacrifice. So, you know, there's no doubt about it. And I guess there's lots of areas to unpack on work-life balance and, you know, how you find that and so forth. But my, my sort of take on it, and I would be at pains to emphasize that this, you know, is, is, is individual. And, you know, it really isn't one size fits all here. It's, it's hugely um, personal, you know, personalized. But my take on it was I could accept that huge asymmetry and sacrifice and I guess being honest risk you know because you are sometimes by death of a thousand tiny little knife cuts um, emitting key relationships I'm prepared to take that risk because I think if with a fair wind I put it off 
I've built a firm of value. You know, I've at least got the option to sort of um, uh, take a different path, and, and you know, with a fair wind, hopefully, bought some financial freedoms down the other end of that. At, at which point, I can wholly restore um, some of those imbalances, uh, hopefully. And I, if my wife was listening to this now; she, she'd she'd be screaming, you know, "Boy, you didn't get it right, did you?" <laughs> but um, you know, my sense is, that I, I I I did just, you know, and I was probably quite fortunate. I think if I'd have been doing the kind of regime I'd done for another thirty-five years, I probably wouldn't be married. Probably wouldn't deserve to be married, you know, and probably. Uh, wouldn't deserve to be called a father, if I'm honest, you know, because it, it, it did take, it takes you away in a couple of ways, actually. It takes you away physically. I was, I was um, weekly commuting and essentially working away from home. But also, if I'm honest, certainly my wife would again reinforce this, is that I'd get back of a weekend and your, your brain is so unbelievably absorbed um, that you kind of, whilst physically in the room, quite often you're not in the room as well. So on both of those fronts, um, yeah, you're paying a you're paying a price, but that that was my kind of way of rationalising it at the time. Hence, why I was so deliberate about that five year build point build a point of value. Do you remember any particular conversations, or or maybe more broadly, the advice you give to those who you are um, talking to, who are saying, "Dom, I'm thinking of doing this." How much should they be bringing their partner in at this early stage? What are those conversations they should be having? That is a great question. And um, actually on one of my blogs, I think I literally did bring my wife in and she sort of did write a piece on this actually. And I, totally, totally, I would say it is so important. And Nick, we've spoken about the broader sort of life balance, I guess, piece in that I, I've seen too many people now to sort of count where they have achieved such commercial success. They're driving great you know, professional service businesses, Everything is like a 10 out of 10, but they are either completely unfit, you know, completely let the personal health go, or their, you know, their personal relationships, their home life is just atrophied. And what a shallow victory that is. And how many, I mean, particularly, I've got to say, in the big companies, um, you know, the partnerships in some of these places is littered with, with that. And just, you know, what a myopic, shallow victory that that, that is. So... Absolutely, bring in important others right from the early early part of the conversation if you're thinking of going down this route. And I guess the kind of conversation you should be having, and, and, and with important your partner, with really close friends, is to say, look, almost, I'm conscious of this risk. You know, I'm flagging it. But actually, when I go into this world, I'm probably going to be the last person that's going to see it, because it's that classic death by you know, as I say, um, a thousand acts of omission. I want you as my closest friends to referee it and, you know, make it unequivocally clear when I've overstepped that point. And, you know, just setting up some early rules. I mean, you know, I'll give you one classic example. We, we used to find ourselves when we were three, four, five years in, but, you know, we'd, we'd have conference calls that started on a Sunday afternoon and we'd have a number of us on, you know, all the way through the Sunday and the Sunday evening. And I guess part of what had happened by 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 creep is that, you know, we felt, well, we, we, you know, we're seeking to massively excel when we deliver to our clients. Are we fully prepared for the Monday? Have we done everything that clients are ready for? You know, we want to operate par excellence. So it was part of that sort of high performing dynamic that was driving it. But then after a while, it kind of, it became almost an internal thing. And we've got to be doing this to be demonstrating that we, you know, we are operating in this high performing way. And, you know, I think I at one point sort of stepped back and said, you know what? I, actually, some of these calls, none of them have had a client imperative. It's all been like an internal call. It's on a Sunday evening. You know, what are we doing? Keeping, I think, your eye out for that kind of creep is 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 really important. And a lot of people have said before, you know, being rigid with date nights, you know, getting, getting you know, fixing times in the diary that are just completely bulletproof and, and protected uh, because it's amazing how quick, admit to do the little things. Mm. 
And I think it's I think it's really good advice. And especially like you say, with you living in Bath at the time, commuting. I know personally when I was in in-house and consulting, like you say, it's those little acts of omission. It's the, oh, I can't make that beer tonight because of work or I've got to do this thing that over time do wear down relationships. While, while it's not an all-out blazing row that you say you'll never speak to someone again, you do really need to be very conscious of that. And yes, I've personally found exactly that advice helps a lot. Um, so thank you, and hopefully it helps. Well, I'll tell listeners. you, just actually, talking of devices, Nick, I just share something with you which I think helped me. And so I, I talked earlier very quickly about balance, and I, I, um, I, I've got a really simple device that kind of permeates all of my sort of online, you know, kind of categorizations, all my emails, all my folders, and, you know, indeed even the index of any life planning I've ever done has been based on a similar kind of structure. So, you know, broadly speaking, and I haven't got this in front of me, so I'm probably going to have to... Um, probably, you know, self-correct some of it. But, you know, it looks at, you know, all sorts of areas. So fitness would be one. Stories and experiences would be another. Financial would be another. Family and friends, absolutely. Probably that's worth starting with number one is, is that. Your career uh, clearly is a piece of that. Um, professional development, ongoing personal professional development is another aspect. Community, you know, the, ro the role you might play or seek to play in the community is another aspect. And then, you know, t you tend to have a kind of a, an adder bucket of just, you know, what's going on in your home and your habitat, you know, fixing the roof and stuff. So, you know, there's a, there's a mechanical catch-all bucket as well. But broadly, those categories. Okay, so here's the device, though. I would, as frequently as I could, really go away with rods and actually get that out and say, look, you know, let's, let's score each other almost on a 1 to 10. So, you know, not score each other, but self-score. Where do we think we are? And doing it with your partner is a really, really valuable exercise because I remember one time doing it and it's probably what actually led me to say, no, it is the right time to sell now where, you know, I would go through that sweep and, you know, on the financial side, it was great, you know, it's 10 out of 10 and career, loving it, 10 out, you know, 9 out of 10. And, and, you know, other aspects probably wouldn't have been at that level, but listening to my wife's rendition of her take on that and she would be career two out of 10, you know, I, I don't feel in any way that I'm using my skills, you know, and, uh, you know, she'd been um, raising her family and, and, and doing it brilliantly, I must add. And, you know, it just really sort of struck me, it's true, that the asymmetry has now got completely out of place in relation to our relationship. And yeah, I just thought it was a really nice device to, to, to do that. That's a really interesting exercise. How often would you do that? Is that sort of a six monthly? Is it a quarterly checkpoint yeah no i guess we were sort of doing it probably well if i'm honest i think we probably aspired to do it six monthly and it probably ended up being annually you know we'd get you know at least try and get a long weekend where we'd really really enjoy each other's company and that would be enough you know something we could do we were doing it one time being up in the alps somewhere and looking over the mountains doing it over a glass of wine it was that kind of yeah that's a, that's a really good exercise. I think, I think I'm going to take that away and try it with my wife as well so thank you very much for that <laughs> don't need to share your scores but <laughs> So I think bringing, coming back to the Morehouse journey, and I think we'll inadvertently touch on a number of the topics that we've already delved into. I do want to come back to that first project. So, oh, yes, sorry, we so there you were. Them. You've just convinced someone that Don Morehouse of Morehouse Consulting is a credible consulting company, and you've got a team of four. No, so actually, what, I'll give you a bit more about that. So um, written the business plan, served my notice, set off, and then it's that... Uh, oh my God moment of I've got to find the first piece of work. And I genuinely didn't know where it was. I, I guess what I had done as part of my planning is to sort of go through my sort of network and say, of all the people I know, 
who are potential clients, if I was to sort of put some probabilistic weight into all of those opportunities, you know, where do I land? And I think from, you know, from memory, it said, well, there's an 80% chance with this bucket of potential leads you've got, one of them will, will come good. But, you know, of course, that was just a theoretical exercise. So then, you know, went off and a whole load of conversations and, um, you know, got the first um, engagement from Transport for London. And, and initially it was just me. It was just Don Morehouse setting off to uh, scope out a piece of work. And I mean, it, it was a fantastic project, actually. We essentially had to help Transport for London develop their project and um, program management methodology and protocols uh, for an organization that had hitherto never really been involved in project delivery, but had just been awarded a huge through Prudential borrowing. And, and, and you know, um, Gordon Brown at the time had just been awarded circa £12 billion worth of capex that they, that they could borrow, uh, essentially, to repair the infrastructure for London's you know, transport system. And we were essentially helping them um, develop the methodology and the protocols by which they could build these pieces of infrastructure and you know, spend that money wisely. Fascinating project. So initially I scoped it um, and then it became really clear that you know they, they just needed a lot of, of, of horsepower this project and I got permission to, you know, I proposed that I needed a small team. My firm's principle, which was a really key one, was that we never wanted to dominate. You know, we were very much a small boutique firm so it was always much more about a broader consulting client team TFL colleagues were the majority. We would just be the heartbeat that sat in the middle and really architected it, you know, the program and really drove it. But, you know, I, I argued, um, I, I, you know, very uh, fairly and also um, it could have been a much bigger team, frankly, that that this, this team of four was going to be key. Got the thumbs up, got the permission, which was great. This is like the first growth, you know, juncture moment. And then had that sort of massive, uh, you know, mild panic and this is the journey of the professional service uh, entrepreneur, and I don't think it ever really goes away, that you seesaw between looking for work to Struth, you know, where do I get the resource to sort of, um, you know, fulfill on it? And so, you know, and to a degree of white lie going on on the, on the, on the, on the, on the promise to the client, um, and, uh, but got the thumbs up and I had to scrabble around to try and find, you know, a team. Uh, and and it really was actually. I remember the moment there. Well, I think I think I found two of the three, and 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 almost was at a point of having to go back to the client and sort of saying, you know, I'm sorry, I have overpromised. You know, maybe you should have gone with a big company. <laughs> um, and literally, I think within the 24 hours before, I took a phone call. When it was a chap who I had known and met previously, who had gone off, you know, left his company, had gone off travelling, and essentially just disappeared into the ether, and just phoned me up and said, um. You know, words to the effect of Dom, I hear you've uh, started up a new company and I just wondered per chance, might there be any opportunities for me? And honestly, it was like, you know, manna from heaven at the time. I could have grabbed the guy, you know, through the phone and hugged him. And and, and I tell you what, though, Nick, is, is incredible. It's the number of times where on that journey, you know, essentially I had said, look, you know, I'm yeah, of course we can do this, um, Mr. and Mrs. Klein, because I think as an entrepreneur, you you know, you've always got to sort of overreach and overstep and, you know, never turn down work uh, and, and then, you know, have my head in my hands thinking, how am I going to do this? And in the sort of, you know, the 24 hours before some magical moment coming to be, you know, I, I think there is some kind of law of the universe that, that, that backs, you know, backs those that dare a little. And, and how did you position yourself to this particular client so being an independent uh, consultant myself I think there's in clients a very different perception around people who are firmly and independent and that's what they do versus a consulting firm 
how did you position yourself to be a consulting firm that could then bring people in as opposed to, oh, this is just Dom on his own? So I, uh, that's a great question because that gets to a massive nub of, you know, how you go through from, you know, Singleton to, to actually building a, a company. From the, from the get-go, actually, I was really careful to position it as a, um, as a capability as opposed to, you know, a sort of a, a, a single to play. I mean, to a degree, I sort of mildly shot myself in the foot with the eponymous naming and that, <laughs> that, did, become, that did become an issue. Uh, there's a side story on that. Um, we can maybe get into but for example the website in the early stage is is a critical asset Um, it's always going to be one point of reference for a client corroborating their decision to you know to 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 hire and I I came so close I remember at the time to just using a you know friends down the you know who I knew locally probably conversation down the pub did a bit of, you know, WordPress on the side. You said, you know, I'll build you your first website. And I thought, oh, great. You know, that'll be fantastic. That'll save me a load of money that I've provisioned in the business case. And, and, and stopping myself and thinking, no, if I'm serious about this endpoint, and again, the value of the plan, I, I've, got, I've got to project that from day one. And actually, you know, a big chunk of my early savings were in a, in a, in a website that, you know, told that always probably a little bit of a white lie that, you, you would have struggled to have looked at my website and realized it was just me initially. You know, it was, you didn't it have was, a meet our team set. Yeah, I think I probably <laughs> avoided that page at the time. And I think, you know, you, 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 you um, would have quite likely looked at that as a prospective client and, and thought, whilst it's not explicit, there's, there's a wider capability here. And all the language talked to that and all the, the, the projection of vision and so forth talked to that. So I think just setting off with that posture um, and that language is, is is, is quite key. And of course, you, you only back it up though with, with, with demonstrable expertise and capability and asset. And we can talk about that down the line, but you know, projecting it from the get-go is key. So I think that that's a really helpful guide to how people can establish themselves. I do want to, to talk about how you found the other people. So you, you said the sort of last one just called you up out of the blue and you know, after he hung up the phone, I'm sure you sort of fist pumped the air. How did you find the others? Was this was it just frantic cold calling of friends and associates? Was it how, how did you do it? Yeah, I get you know it was fundamentally leaning on the professional network, which you know I guess was was um, I, you know I'd been at say the big company, people that I'd worked with had moved on, were, you know were already outside. But I tell you one of the key rules in those early stages that was was indirect, which was um, I, I knew people. I mean even you know in a, in a large very successful company you know like Deloitte, you know if I'm honest. I probably only would have would have said that the upper quartile was the kind of you know level I wanted to 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 to, to sort of have you know as colleagues. Um, so if if I knew somebody who was in my upper quartile, I would um, be very happy to speak to them and say, look, you know, who have you worked with in your broader life? You know, maybe out in different projects that you would you would rate. So it was it was very indirect, but it was indirect through people I absolutely trusted. And I think, you know, we always had a rule as, as long as it was only one node away from somebody that I would happily work with because, you know, I know from my own professional network, the level of, 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 of you know, your, of your competence and your values and so forth. You know, I was very happy to, to take that. And, you know, and essentially the first few folk came in in that, in that kind of, um, yeah, that vein. I think that's a really good point that good people know good people and actually leveraging that network and net leveraging the the best i like what you said around one node away and actually being quite strict on that because i think something that 
can happen over time as you need people or as firms get larger is that rule becomes more lax. And I guess that's where you see some of the larger firms start to stagnate potentially. So that takes us to four. And was it then a case that you grew the TFL account and built the firm around that? Or did you have a number of clients that came out of, out of that? No, we did. So you're going to strain my memory cells here a little, Nick. But effectively, in that first year, Transport for London was was a fantastic client for us. And you know, of course, there's a degree of good fortune and serendipity that was inherent in that. But I tell you what, we we worked really hard to to deliver. You know, just an excellent um, piece of work there. So I think you know, we 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 kind of deserved, as it were, permission to sort of build on from that point. So the, the early sort of next opportunities in, t- in Transport for London started to, to you know, creep from that point and we were picking up other smaller jobs you know, around. And then I, th- I guess that around the end of the first year point, we were then able to, it gave us the oxygen as it were, to sort of look to you know, move into different um, clients. And I think you know, we probably got client number two and three towards the back end of that 12 months. But I'll, I'll tell you a little side story actually, which uh, might, might be opposite for some as well, which is at the end of that engagement, and we literally ran it to the day. It was, you know, it was like a, uh, you know, tw- I think it was almost exactly a 12 month piece of work. We delivered the scope, you know, to, to granular uh, sort of specification. And, you know, we'd done this in budget and it was fantastic. It was, it was a genuinely great project to be involved in. And, and Transport for London rightly got huge plaudit for it. And, you know, a lot of their staff were, took lion's share of credit for, for, for the role they played there. But we, you know, we, we essentially, and, you know, I guess being a project management focused business, you know, we we're very uh, mildly pedantic about this. You know, we closed the project down, wrote up the closure report and essentially walked off site. And the kind of client at the time said, look, guys, uh, you have done a brilliant job. I would just like you to hang around for another couple of months just to give all of my team a bit more confidence that they can absolutely kind of get this embedded and in, you know, into the organization. And I said words to the effect of, you have everything you need. You know, we'd trained the trainer, they'd got all the materials, you know, it was really just a confidence issue. And the only way they were going to get over that hump is to just, you know, they had to just do it. And so we walked off and we literally, I mean, at the time I had a small office, you know, it was essentially my flat in um, Pimlico in London. The four of us went back to this flat and the following week we were kind of like starting some early business development and nothing coming in. And that probably went to week two, went to week three. And I remember at the time, you know, saying, guys, I think, you know, we can hold our heads up high and we've, we've professional sort of, <laughs> we, we, we can be clear that it aligns with our values. We've done the right thing. But are we the most naive consultants <laughs> going? Have we just walked away from, you know, selling on the work? And I tell you what, you know, we, we held our nerve a bit longer. And the following week, I actually took a phone call from the Commissioner of Transport for London, a guy called Bob Kiley at the time. And um, I hadn't worked directly to him. I'd been working to, a, uh, you know, one of his direct reports at the time. And um, Bob Kiley said, look, he said, I've just heard about you guys and that you walked away after 12 months, having been offered the extension. And he said, you know, I mean, he was, he was a senior, senior guy. Um, he was in his probably 60s at the time. He said, you know, I've been around the block. I've never heard of anything like that before. He said, I'm so intrigued. I need, you need to come in and I need to meet you. So I went in to meet Bob Kiley. He was a, he was a fantastic gentleman. And um, effectively, that led to another amazing piece of work, which took almost another year, working essentially in Bob Kiley's outer office on a hugely strategic piece of work. So we held our nerve on a principle and it kind of, you know, it led to, it led to that sort of growth point. And I think that that's a really interesting story because so often I think in consulting by the nature of the beast, 
there is the, the drive to get the extension, keep the client ticking over, grow the account. I don't want to say no matter what, I think all consultancies will do the best for their clients, but there is that pressure that you want to keep revenue going. And I'm, when you were a four-man business, you were funding everyone, that must have been an extreme pressure. You're looking at two months of bench time or two months of, of revenue. But it's great to hear that actually that sticking to your principles really paid off, however tough I imagine it was at the time to, to walk away. Yeah, I would say, and you know, there's a couple of points here. So, I mean, this is one of those real sort of cliched pieces of rhetoric, isn't it? You'll see on everybody's kind of website, which is, you know, we aim to sort of build capability in our clients such that we do ourselves out of a role, you know, type, type piece. And that, that is so important to actually take beyond the rhetoric and, and live to. Uh, no, of course, you know, I mean, there's a commercial savvy about this. Of course, you're always open to farming an account and sort of providing additional service. But you can arbitrate the sort of the value balancing point of that. And, and for me, it was well, this specific piece of work, you absolutely have what you need. You know, and we'd worked really hard from day one to sort of build that capability transfer in. Uh, and so, you know, I, in this instance, I'm doing your client a disservice by extending that doesn't mean there are other opportunities in your organization I think we would be well-placed to do. I just want to make sure that you see every time that we work to you that we'll live to that value. Brilliant. I want to touch on the, the point you mentioned earlier in your plan and um, the deliberate decision to make it a five-year plan. I think it'd be really interesting to understand why you did that and how that then influenced the business. And equally, how your your colleagues and your hires took it. Because as I understand, and do correct me if I'm wrong, you were very open from the start with all of your team. You mentioned you shared the plan. So they presumably must have seen that, right, Dom's here for five years and then hoping to move on. How, how did you manage that? And how did the plan, what impacts did that have on the organization and its growth? So the reason why, again, I probably was deliberate about five years was more in reference to my wider family circumstance you know i genuinely felt if i was to you know i always knew you know you, you, there would be some kind of earnout so five years really equals you know six seven eight and i knew the, the the sort of asymmetries my life would have for that period of time and i thought that was just about bearable and if i'm lucky you know it would have been worth it so that was kind of why i framed it initially by five years but the key point was it was an option it was the ability to take take value from that company at that point should should the circumstances dictate and you know that's the only point i ever make when i talk to other entrepreneurs is you know I, I, there's no right or wrong about building a company to sell it or building a company and having it for your whole life and taking an income from it you know that i don't want to be perceived as the evangelist for a five-year program i'm just saying that was you know worked for me the key point i would say to everybody though is optionality you have no idea what's going to be going on in your life in five years time so why would you not build a point and a sustainable you know business such that you could you know prosecute that if you if you if you so needed to so that was that key point. And then, you know, the really key uh, way I played it was, was that transparency. And I remember, you know, having advisors at the time who just said, you're crazy sharing that with, with, with new joiners. And I just said, it didn't sit right with me. I mean, there's a whole thing we, we could talk about just values in a business. And one of those was absolute transparency. I, you know, wanted to absolutely uh, have it out there. And I guess if I'm honest, uh, Nick, I think it was it was it was definitely definitely net positive in so much as you know I was then attracting people. Well, firstly, you know it's always a net positive about being honest. You know, fundamentally, life gets really difficult when you you have half truths going on or, or or you're not disclosing. It invariably comes back and creates a much much bigger pr problem down the line. 
Um, so, you know, that's a fundamental point. But the, the net other benefit is, um, you know, I was attracting people that were really engaged by the fact that it was such a deliberate build to value. And they wanted to be involved in a firm that was so systematically going about that. Because, you know, on their CVs, they can talk about how they understand, you know, how you build these capabilities in a, in a firm, as well as just their technical client facing sort of role. Um, and I guess, you know, the point I would always make those, you know, I, it's an option. I genuinely don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know if I'm going to, uh, we are going to pull, you know, when we're going to pull that sort of lever. Um, I have no idea what the other side of it's going to be. I, I'm just being totally honest with you. It's, it's, it's an option that we want to have in there. And of course, then when you get to that point, you know, you have to sort of manage those conversations very carefully. But I tell you what, I wouldn't want to do it having sprung it on my team as a complete surprise. You know, for us, it was a much more, more of completely open dialogue about how do we traverse this change. And I think that that's a really interesting point in itself, because speaking to friends in some firms, there, there is a perception that they, they don't quite know what's going on at the top. It's um, uh, my last guest talked about sort of similar to how they elect the Pope, everyone gets in a room and then some black smoke comes out and that's a decision made. So actually having that openness from the start is a, a, a really interesting way of doing it. Did that create any challenges though that maybe you hadn't foreseen when you first thought, I will share this with everyone? Do you know, I, I'd, I'd really struggle to, 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 to think of any, certainly none that you know I can sort of remember powerfully enough to say you know, that, that there was any pause for thought on that. And um, you know, and in some ways, a positive might be, you know, it puts people off. You know, frankly, if somebody wasn't, um, uh, you know, wanting to get involved in a company that's so overtly kind of building, you know, internally or, or wants, you know, maybe I guess there's a lot of consultants that just want to do their job and, you know, work with a client that got no interest in what's going on back in the ranch. And I guess uh, subliminally, we were putting off people of that ilk because we absolutely wanted people that were hugely interested and passionate about building the very craft that they were sailing in. On that type of person, there's, like you say, there's some people who I think just just like to coast. For people who maybe are listening, who have, who are working at say a, a firm where a partnership structure is more traditional, so their path would be climb up the ladder and then make partner, and you can climb that ladder, but it's a different structure. How does a, a firm where it's being built with a view to sell, um, with the CEO owning, I assume, the, the bulk share? How do you deal with people who say, well? I, my goal is to make partner. How could I do something like that in this firm? Is that an option that's still open under a, a structure like yours? Was there something you tailored for people like that? So a um, couple of aspects to that. Um, and I should say, actually, so you know, if people that don't, don't know the end story is, uh, you know, we, we sold in 2008. Um, it was sold to BT. Actually, the firm has since MBO'd back out of of BT and is back out as a you know privately owned business again. So, and and actually you know the the construct of the deal with with BT was you know foursome foursome autonomy. You know so you know in some ways nothing really changed. So this is what I talk about. You know it's it's impossible sometimes to understand what that world looks like. And, and you know for for for, for many um, members of the firm, you know other than change to maybe the, the leadership team you know nothing uh, nothing really and that's only you know, when when those leaders personally elected to sort of move on and there was a succession you know nothing really changed so you know that's quite an unusual example I guess but you know it's it needn't be the sort of you know hugely cataclysmic sort of you know end of the world type scenario in fact you know there can be many positives that emanate from some of these transactions um, 
so that was point number one. But point number two, I, you know, maybe this is not answering it directly, but we we would um, really encourage honest conversations. You know, there's there's a degree of a bit of theatre, isn't there, in a lot of corporate life and, and, and sort of game playing. But, you know, we essentially said, look, you, you're all really super bright, super smart folk. Let's not dance around handbags. You know, it's, have honest conversations uh, and, and, you know, really honest conversations. So, you know, we got to the level of a candor where somebody would say, look, you know, to be honest, the reason why I've joined your firm is I want to get two to three years of experience and I want to set up my own consultancy business, possibly mildly even competitive. And we would say, look, absolutely fantastic. So you probably need to join the team that's involved in, you know, the financial planning, you know, and understand how our firm operates in that respect. Because, you know, what makes sense for you is that you're really well armed when you do want to bounce off in two to three years time and set up your own consultancy firm. You know, essentially the line would be, let, you know, no one's kind of joining this company for 25 years in the carriage clock. All we're looking for is people that build a better craft and can say they contributed to leaving it in a better place than they found it on that journey. And if that's, you know, 12 months, five years, 10 years, doesn't matter. Just honest conversations and we'll hope to help you go on to your forward journey as well. And that's that really does answer it, I think, in the... The honest conversations, I think, is also quite a refreshing point. People can obviously could be honest with you about what they wanted out of the relationship. You you were clear about what you wanted and it worked for everyone. I, I do want to touch on, you mentioned around the values of the firm, particularly how you set them up versus how they went through the organization. I, I know one of your blogs that I read, you really do emphasize the point of bringing the whole firm in, because I think the challenge you highlighted in that blog, and I've certainly seen uh, in large firms, both in consulting and outside, is at some point somebody said everyone must, every company must have corporate values and things were put on walls. But very, actually, I'd say very rarely do those really resonate with the people on the ground or actually play out in day to day life. How, how did you make sure that the values that, either, that you created? did land in Morehouse? And then how did you make sure they evolved to say stay current and not become just shelfware? I guess, um, well, going back to the business plan point, you know, one of the real luxuries of setting out as a singleton is, you know, essentially you can pen values that are your personal values projected. And, you know, I gave that a lot of considered thought at the time. But I guess your question, Nick, was about how do they then evolve and survive a, you know, a team build um, out? And, and I, I can actually, I can remember... Um, a really nice point on this journey early on where so we would go away for quarterly um events and that that discipline came about pretty quickly and annually we would go away for you know a really concerted sort of period of time you know typically four or five days and the first exercise we did um of that nature was to Briançon out in the in the alps we all got the train down you know through, through france a real ramshackle old place that one of my colleagues found. Um, but I remember one evening there, we pulled this conversation back out again. And, you know, I can picture myself there now. It was such a uh, uh, key moment. You know, there was a roaring fire going. I think, you know, there was snow on the ground. We'd all been out, you know, in the day. And a red wine was flowing. And one of my colleagues facilitated this exercise brilliantly, which was, you know, words to the effect of, you know, Dom's penned these values as, as the founder. But, you know, we're now a team of whatever at the time, we're probably, you know, 15, 20. You know, let's, let's look at them. Let's refresh them. You know, do we all subscribe to them? And we did this exercise at the time, um, which was really well run, where essentially what we said is, look, you know, if they're just kind of words on the wall, you know, that classic sort of poster above this sort of photocopier, you know, it's, it's just nonsense. It's just a sort of corporate shopping list. 
But if we have perspectives that we can bring to life with stories again, then, you know, we know they, they carry some value. And so essentially what we did was, well, firstly, kind of calibrate, do we, you know, do they still stand true? And, and more importantly, how do we, how do we explain them? And, and what we did at the time was really powerfully say, well, that value there, you know, that, that was lived to perfection by, you know, Phil, who do you remember that time when, you know, we talk about, you know, clients being absolutely, you know, critical, you know, Phil, you know, stayed all the way through the night and, you know, remember he drove over there and then he came back here and he did this and then he went over there and helped it. And ultimately, you know, gave that client exactly what they were after, but with immense, you know, personal sacrifice, that is living the value. And, and so for each value, you know, we had sort of these bank of anecdotes that were these amazingly powerful real life references. And so that, that sort of, fix them and then I think you know keeping them alive because they broadly you know they're pretty malleable after a certain point keeping them alive you know we used to at each of these events celebrate where they had been lived you know one of our values though for example was um effectively humor and you know let's take our profession unbelievably seriously but not ourselves you know and that's so often spun the other way in a lot of organizations so how do we how do we celebrate that well you know each quarter we would we had an award called Muppet of the Quarter, and it would just look at utter buffoonery where people had, you know, just messed, messed up. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, you, you've, you've got to sort of, um, you've got to keep playing it back into the sort of dialogue of the organization, haven't you, and, and celebrate people that are living it. And so that, that's a really good outline of how you, how you sort of brought the values to life. And I, I like the awards. Um, the firm I used to work for had awards as well, and I, I think that really does help reinforce the values beyond just the, I like the poster above the uh, photocopier phrase because that so often is what it is bringing us back to high performance teams uh, you've mentioned a yeah, can I just say for just please. leaving this topic is, as a side point because I, I honestly when um, I see people do this well I always see it as being such a key part of how they've then gone on to grow so um, only this is, might be a nice uh, resource for some people if they're interested in that point particularly but I wrote a blog, um, which was, it'll be on my site, um, uh, and it was on a firm called... What is your site? Uh, I'll yeah, put so it in the notes. Yeah, it's donmorehouse.com, and you, if you go to the blog roll there, and you just search on, on values. I wrote a piece, and it was, it was about an organization called Perpetual Insights. They're based out in the States. I, you know, I'm I have the privilege to... Uh, I, think, I think that was the one I read. Yeah, and I, you know, I sit on their board. A great, great company. But they, they did that exercise a couple of years ago, and you know, they ran it themselves. And you know, I was, I was privileged to sort of be in attendance as well. They did it brilliantly, and they did it so well. I felt compelled on the flight back to write it up because um, I think if you ran it like that, and, and 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 therefore it's a set of values that the team have been involved in crafting and owning at a critical point in that early stage growth, it becomes such an important totem for you know, how that, that, the DNA of that firm going forward. And I think there's, there's a really interesting piece to pick up there, actually, and also give back to people who, who are considering starting their own firm or who maybe were where you were at that point with Morehouse is, firstly, at what stage should somebody do that values refresh exercise in their company life? Is there, is there a size, is there a time? Is, do you, you know, like the sort of Venn diagram you had around starting a business, is there a phase at which you should do it? And building on that, for especially a uh, founder-run business, how do you create an environment where the team can freely say, actually, Dom, that value, don't agree with that at all. We want this one instead. I'm sure the conversation wasn't as harsh as that, but that, I imagine, is where sometimes you may have felt that. How, how do you 
foster that environment? So when do you have the conversation and how do you foster the open environment to have it? So when do you have the conversation? I would say it, it's, um, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure whether it's a time-based or, or, or sort of team size-based, but I, I would say you'd certainly be wanting to have it, you know, on the premise that, you know, you're no longer at Singleton and, and, and self-dialogue. Uh, you know, I, you, even if you've, you know, you've got two or three other colleagues, you know, why would you not have that conversation, you know, once you've got to know each other and you're six, you know, 12 months into that working relationship? Because the key point you're making as the founder is to say, Look, you know, I've set this kind of merry ship off, but you know, it's not going to it's not going to build unless you know we build that, that that sort of collaboration. So, you know, I think it'd be more about a period of time you've worked together, you've got some trusted colleagues, you know, you respect their opinion, you know, you sensibly have that conversation. Um, so that's the kind of the when and the, the the broader point you're making is you know a cultural one about how do you foster a place where people feel that they can talk truth to power effectively and yeah. uh, you know nick that is absolutely salient to high performing teams and i can't tell you again the point where that changes and you know a junior in the firm doesn't feel like they can put their hand up in a whole firm setting and say you know mr partner mrs partner i think you're talking rubbish is essentially the beginning of the end in my mind so, you know, I, I and I, again, maybe this was just um, something I'd carried again from the forces to a degree, the Royal Marines, you know, operate very robustly like this, which is, you know, y y we've got to have that dynamic in this firm. And that was a really important, you know, to a degree, sort of tacit, unspoken kind of code. And, you know, again, the great thing about these events were there would be this really healthy, you know, discord and, and debate on, on at times. And, you know, I used to love the fact that somebody, you know, the most junior of the firm would have the confidence to stand up and say that because that was a reinforcement of exactly the kind of values we wanted in in, in the company. As a related point, actually, you've got me going off on, one, on this here, but um, I also talk to boards now often and say, you know, it's a really, really important dynamic of well-performing boards, which um, um, Colin Powell, the, 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 the Secretary of State for you know, the States mm -hmm. back a um, decade or so ago, you know, I love the quote, you know, he... Uh, talks to which is um, he uh, you know I'm not going to do the quote justice because I can't remember it but it's words to the effect of I, I, you know what I absolutely seek from a team is you know active disagreement because I want you to find those flaws in what we're doing at the point however that we make a collective decision you know we're shoulder to shoulder when we walk out of this room and, and, and execute it and essentially that would be my advice to a new forming board you know to a, a broader team is you know, you want that healthy kind of intellectual debate however at the point where decisions have been made debate stops shoulder to shoulder that was a historical conversation we're all of one mind brilliant no thank you very much for that and i think the high performing teams point which i know is a theme that's come throughout this conversation is a really interesting one and i'd be interested about as you scaled morehouse were there any points that stick in your mind where you really had to adjust, be it the firm structure, be it other elements, to ensure the team remained high performance? Is there a different approach to having a high performance team of, say, four people than there is to having a high performance team of 50 people? I think there's a number of things around professional service firms where you... Um stages of growth where you know you have to look at this in a slightly different way so yeah clearly i guess you know you kind of you marched towards 10 you know you'll know each other intimately you know it's kind of it's clear where the the team is um you know as we grew i guess one of the sort of 
next sort of organizational constructs that came into being was sort of the idea of a sector focus. So, you know, people, um, you know, team members sort of sat more within a particular kind of sector area. The key, the key bit I was sort of, I think I would say here though, is that for me, the language around team, you know, and there's a lot of, uh, frankly, sort of nonsense written by sort of academics on this, where you know what's the sort of team size. I, I, I think you can have a team, and 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 the rhetoric of team, and and, and I don't say ne- um, rhetoric in a perjurative sense in this in this instance, but the label of team can absolutely be valid all the way, you know, easily. You know, I mean, don't even worry about that until you're kind of getting close to a hundred, because the team is the is is the whole firm. And I, I mean, professional service companies, it's, in some ways, it's easier to do this because you have the sort of the project, you know, construct and engagements are going out, you know, in different project teams. And you know, if you're doing your job well, you're kind of looking to kind of keep that mixed up all the time. So people are moving around in that kind of matrix. You know, they're working on different engagements. You know, they might in junior grades, they might work into different sectors. You know, essentially what you're trying to do, I guess, at the top is just to make sure that from an organizational design perspective, there is huge opportunity for people not to ever fill their, their, their caught up in one, you know, silo, inverted commas. Um, and, and, you know, you're just mixing it up all the time. Uh, again, the escapes were a brilliant way of doing that because regardless if people had felt they'd sat in a sub-team, you know, they're back out in the, in the true team at that point. Um, but I, you know, to your specific question I, I i don't think unless you get you know you start to get north of 100 that you really uh you know you you really have to grapple with that question if you if you're doing your job right and tell me if it's the same answer for you as the leader of the firm what if any skills did you find that you had to either focus on developing further or bring into your toolbox as the firm scaled i guess um we, I mean, I can say specifically something we did embark on was, um, you know, I, I put a board in place very early on and that all, that felt a little bit also like uh, we were, uh, y- y- you know, playing a game that was sort of um, above our actual status at the time. It felt a little bit, um, yeah, that we were sort of jumping ahead of ourselves, but the, that that construct was, was, was critical to, to our forward growth. And that meant bringing in, you know, one or two external others that you know were essentially you know much more experienced advisors to me. So I think you know being very very open minded to the fact that you just don't have all the answers. And you know I was very very deliberate about hunting down people that had demonstrably done what I was seeking to do and had been there and seen it and done it. And there's a huge amount of, of value you get from those kind of folks. And then those conversations then lead to some of that gap analysis. So you know I think it led to a number of us going off and doing the. Um, Chartered directorship with the um, the IOD, you know, that filled in a few gaps, particularly around maybe some of the corporate strategy areas. Maybe uh, I was lucky; I'd done the MBA, but I guess for my, some of my colleagues that was useful. You know, so I think it's difficult to say specifically, and I think the general point would be get get some great external advisors in as well that can kind of you know help you with that conversation. No, that, that's really useful, um, and yeah, the the board one's definitely an interesting one. I think again in in say a professional services environment where often it's a a partnership type basis or sort of equals around a table. On a similar theme, when you were planning this, so your five days, was there anything that through your time at, at Morehouse and actually running the firm that was completely different to what you thought it would be when you were younger and when you were about to set it up? 
I mean, you really are looking into the unknown, Nick. I guess at that point, you know, sat in that little room writing a business plan. You know, it's all it's all very, very conceptual. Do you, do you know what? If if anything, I think um, you know, it, the, the reality was it was it was even more fun than I think I had ever envisaged, and and, and more rewarding than I'd ever envisaged. And you know, a kind of a key bit for me, I, I think, sometimes gets lost in the entrepreneurial story is you know, it's you know, clearly there's a pursuit of some financial freedoms and goals, but you know, far more importantly, it, you know, that period of my working life was the most magical inclusion in, you know, a, a, a quite unbelievably high-performing group of people. And, you know, I'd occasionally, I mean, going back to this five-year plan, I think I'd penned, uh, you know, if I was successful, it would be a team of, you know, 30 of us at the end of five, year five. I think we were probably 80, 90, you know, at that point. And, and, and you know, there'll be occasions when I'd sort of look around the room at an event and just think, how on earth did I get here? And, you know, a little brief moment of self-reflection, just like how unbelievably fortunate am I ha to have this companionship? You know, there's some just, A, very, very talented, you know, consultants, but just, you know, brilliant people. I used to really enjoy their company. So I'm not sure if it kind of answers your question in terms of the mismatch between reality and expectation, but, you know, in some ways it only but exceeded early conception. Uh, brilliant. I think that that's great to hear. And I think it'll be really good for, for anyone who's in your position at the moment thinking to do the same. I think you've given a, a very concise and balanced view of the, the negatives, but equally the, the positives that have come with it. And I think one of the other elements uh, earlier on, you mentioned around relationship career, you also mentioned health and fitness being quite a big aspect of life. You're probably the first person I've interviewed um, and probably going to be the last where one of the first pictures of you on Google is you, fireman's carrying some other chap in what looks like a race. I it's really scary, isn't it, what ends up in Google? I should, I should probably uh, look at my own name and see what pops up. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's you with a guy over your shoulder oh, and a number on I, your arm. Yeah, no, I think I know what that is. There's a, there's a, um, there's a pairs uh, sort of, CrossFit-based um, event that actually, <laughs> bizarrely, I'm sort of, I've got a, a, a bit of a uh, involvement in now. But um, that that event took place, I think, first time about four or five years ago. And I, yeah, you know, I had a good friend of mine, a guy called Stitch. I seem to remember having on my shoulders <laughs> for one part of it. Yeah. <laughs> and and that I think brings us nicely on to to the fitness side. You know, sitting across from you now, you look in great shape. I think you're probably fitter and stronger than I am. You're, if you don't mind me asking, how old? 48, I think, yeah, 48. So, you know, there's a lot of 48-year-olds I know who are in a lot, lot worse shape. Um, and I think in consulting, especially, as you mentioned, with the, with the long hours, you know, the sort of Chinese or pizzas while you're finishing a slide deck, what is, how important is keeping fit? Because I think a lot of people, maybe less so than relationships, can go, oh, it's, you know, I, I'll get fit afterwards or I'll... I'll do that later. What impact did that have actually on being able to perform at the highest level for you in Morehouse and beyond? Massive topic you've opened up here, Nick. You know, I'd say right up front, you know, there's a sort of risk that, you know, I come across as, uh, you know, is it somewhere else sanctimonious or, you know, some, some uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want this to be overplayed in so much as, you know, there have been times in my life where I've let that go. You know, obviously my my starting point, Ron Marine's officer, yeah, clearly in good shape. I'd say at times building Morehouse, you know, I was in that camp of, you know, probably getting to the gym once a, you know, a week at best and, you know, spending four nights out of five down the sort of as much as you can eat Chinese buffet because, you know, I've left it till 10 o'clock again and there's no <laughs> other options. 
I'll, I'll tell you actually, I had a, a bit of a, a sort of a moment where um, uh, I, I caught up with an old buddy of mine who's a, a guy called, um, I'm going to give him a name check actually, because he's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a really top guy, a guy called Tim Wiggum. And we went off, uh, we were in South Africa at the time and I hadn't seen him for years, but he, he was, he was uh, another Marines officer, old buddy of mine. And, uh, um, it's super, super fit guy. I mean, probably the fittest guy of our generation at the time. And I caught up with him. So I, this is probably 10 years ago. And, you know, he was still in unbelievable shape. I hadn't seen him for years. And I said, you know, mate, if you don't want me asking, you, you're just in unbelievable shape. And he said, you know what? He said, I think I'm fitter now than I was, you know, back in the day. And I was like, well, back when we were 22 being paid to be fit by Her Majesty. And uh, he said, yeah. And, uh, you know, what he did brilliantly was gave me a massive sort of, you know, metaphorical kick up the backside to say, it doesn't matter how old you are, you can always get on top of this again. And I came back from that trip and just thought, you know, do you know what? I've got to, you know, I, if I'm honest, I'd gone into that sort of slide people go into, which is I am, you know, 35, 40 years old. Therefore, you know, this is stuff of yesterday. And I came back and I thought that is absolute nonsense. I've got to re-grip this. And I tell you what, I started just looking at what I ate, I just, you know, got, got my nutrition back on in, in the right place. You know, I kind of got back into uh, training again. I love, you know, and I kind of realized how much I loved it as well. But I tell you what I also realized, Nick, is I also realized how more, much more effective I was at building a company, just looking after myself. And, you know, again, back to this point, I can't tell you the number of boards I sit on where, you know, on one level, you look at some of these uh, guys at the top of their career making so much money, but, you know, the sort of shirt buttons are about to fling out and you know that, you know, the risk of a cardiac attack, you know, has just gone up a huge notch. So what, you know, just what is it all about? And it's back to that balanced life point. You know, I mean, one of the things I think I did have in that original is, you know, I always want to be able to do, you know, Run a run a one minute mile in you know X time or you know always be able to do at least fifteen pull ups whatever it is you know set yourself some goals that you do hold on to so God you're gonna you're gonna set me off Nick I can talk to this uh, you know for, for for an age but um, I guess one thing then important. that would be I think useful for our for our listeners it sounds like you did you, back when you were younger you were doing this for a living as a core part of what you did for delivering the Marines you've obviously got yourself back in shape following your you know your chat with your friend Tim. If some of our listeners are, you know, working on projects or starting their own business, time is short, but they do want they want to get that bang for their buck. What have you found most effective for you? What what's really delivered? For Would you, you know what? I mean, again, you know, there's a danger of sort of um, uh, there's no one size fits all here, and everybody's different. Everyone's got different you know proclivities and sort of you know passions, and you know, in some ways, it's just moving. You know, you just got to <laughs> move your body. I tell you what, you know, I've done and. Um, I, I've just got an old um, outbuilding in, in, in my place here, and I've literally all I've got in it is a, a weightlifting bar, uh, a pull-up rack, and a rowing machine. And you know, I, I just need 20 minutes, and I can have myself lying on the floor, you know, in a, in a fetal position. So it's not a time excuse, and that is the one thing that people have got to uh, remove because you can always find 10, 15, 20 minutes. Um, I, you know, I think, you know, I happen to be uh, sort of fairly um, passionate about CrossFit. It kind of works for me. I'm, I'm a bit of a generalist anyway in that regard. Um, so and that's great for that sort of real high intensity um, piece. But, you know, it frankly doesn't matter, you know, do 15 minutes of air squats and, you know, pull ups and press ups. And, you know, you've done a hell of a lot more than, than most folk will. But it's it's just fitting into your diary and, and just reminding yourself it's, it's, it's important stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. And and the point you make around the, the time, I think, is key. I think we through a mix of workout videos and books, people seem to think you have to spend hours in the gym to achieve what you're saying. And I think to your point, you know, a bar and a, a rowing machine, most people can fit in a garage if they've got one or if you live in a city like I do, there's ample gyms that you can go to. So no, exactly. And there's, you know, there's stacks of blogs now and, and places where you can find, you know, little 10, 15, 20 minute workouts. You know, I think it's, I quite like, I actually have a, a great guy, Ollie, who um, is, is the, the owner of CrossFit Bath, who, who sets me a little program each week. And actually that works for me. I kind of, you know, it, it, it's just a nice little service that Ollie provides, but, you know, it gives me sort of four or five workouts a week. And I, I just like the structure that somebody else has thought about that i almost kind of like don't want the mental uh work of, of putting a workout down it's really nice to somebody say here's your challenges you know try and do these four or five this week and mixes it around for me so there's loads of those kind of websites out there i've got to say as well that I've, I've read a brilliant book recently that i um has really really struck me and i'd really advocate it which is um why people sleep is it why people sleep or um why why we sleep maybe do a bit of Google bashing. Yeah, I'll analogy. put it in the show notes. And uh, honestly, um, as an as a reinforcement of the importance of a good night's sleep as well, which is the other challenge, of course, yeah, when you're working hard. And, uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty stark stuff. And uh, I've really, I'm not going to try and paraphrase it. Just if, if there's one book you read about health and fitness this this year, read that one. No, <laughs> <laughs> and I like you say that it's not a health and fitness podcast so we, we shouldn't label it too much but i think sleep especially it is a really important thing i think there in some quarters still is the perception the sort of gordon gecko sleeps for the week type thing and i i just know personally and if my wife's listening to this she'll laugh i'm i'm reasonably i'd say very strict actually about trying about trying to get my eight hours you don't always get it sometimes things happen and not everyone needs eight hours i think it's important but the impact that not enough sleep has on your productivity in all aspects of your life, I think is phenomenal. I, I don't know no, if that's totally, what you'd, and, you'd agree. And, and the broader point, being specific about professional service companies, well, firstly, holidays, you know, particularly in the States, and you know, I've got involvement in, in companies in the US now, is, you know, there still is a bit of that cultural kind of, um, you, you know, nonsense, frankly, that, you know, somehow holidays are for the week. And, you know, just on a much, much broader kind of, um, creative, uh, you know, inculcating a sort of creative uh, workforce. You know, I, it, it's, I, I mean, utter nonsense that you would think, you know, it's sensible to stymie that kind of release. I, I, I you know, at a, at a kind of um, uh, looking at it over the period of a year. But in terms of the sleep perspective, you know, I, I mean, you know, this is where I know many, many people can associate with this. You know, those nights where, you know, you're sat at your desk and it's sort of 9, 10, 11 p.m. and you're still thinking, mm. oh, I, I, this has got to be on the client's desk, you know, nine o'clock in the morning. and but the degree of diminishing return you start hitting when you get to that point is, is just a, um, a falsehood we all easily fall into. You know, get your eight hours sleep, wake up early, go to bed early, and start again. You know, it's just, it's so, so, so key. I mean, of course, there's the odd exception, but just look at it over the period of a, uh, you know, more meaningful horizon. So I think we've given some great advice to, to people who are looking to start their own firm, Dom. Something I'm quite conscious of is that many of the people listening, they, they may be in consulting, they may be very happy in a firm. They might want to uh, follow a path to partner. That might be what they'd like to do. If someone is looking to move firms, so let's say you know they were where you were, they were at a big four and they want to move firms. I think there's two things from our conversation that, that really jump out to me. And 
it, it's about how can they make sure they're making the right move. Firstly, how can they make sure that the, the values of the firm they want to join align with theirs? And secondly, how can they make sure, sure they're joining a high-performance team? And I think to, to set the, the, the scene, I would almost say, what, what if it's someone they've been introduced to by, say, a recruiter? So many of, uh, many of the people I know who move firms, they'll call a recruiter. They'll say, I know this great firm. Speak to them. I think if it's a referral, like you said, a one-degree referral, that's maybe a bit easier. But for those people who are going through a recruiter and they've now, they're interviewing, say, with yourself, how could they assess the values and their fit? And then how could they, what tests could they do to make sure it is a high-performance team? Uh, and, and, you know, I think you're just a sort of pick up on that in your segue in then that is totally valid you know again I, I think there's a risk I sort of sometimes come across that there's only one path for a working life and you know it's to go off and set up your own business and absolutely you know and, and build it in five years and so you know it absolutely isn't so I think this is a really valid line of, um, of dialogue also so in terms of you know what would I do if I was stepping into another organization and sort of seeking to assess the culture of the values um, so uh, you know what I would uh, would, what I would do is I, I would discount anything that's just put up on corporate literature on a website. Yeah, I mean, frankly, it is, um, you know, that, that, that is, there's no bearing to be taken off of that whatsoever. Quite often it can just be some kind of marketing exercise that's gone on and, you know, people don't even, not even aware it's happened in, in worst extremists. So, you know, I think if I was trying to validate that, I would, um, I guess in a perfect world, you getting close to being offered a, a job, I would say, you know, I'd like to talk to some of the seniors, you know, and I know that can be challenging at times to get that access, but ideally, you know, you want to get close to the leadership team because, you know, if the leaders don't um, live those values, you know, it's just a, it's just a non-starter from that point forward. So, you know, if you could actually sort of speak to some of the seniors in the business that are actually setting the direction of the firm, you know, you'd want to be, trying to validate whether that's a genuine kind of alignment to their own personal um, beliefs and, and behaviors and i guess you know that's difficult often so um you know to try and validate it you know i would try and find two or three people that are any point in that firm and just say look you know well first question what are the values of the business in the main what you find is they probably don't know or they can't remember uh, which quite often speaks volumes um but if it's a good firm They'll they'll bring them to life and they'll tell you what they what they think about that and and, and I'd be really wary of any organisation that wasn't prepared to give you that kind of access as well you know certainly some of the great organisations I've been involved with subsequently subsequently you know would make efforts to sort of assign you know mentors and and give you those kind of points of access when you're getting close to you know making a making a decision so yeah you know validate it with actual people in the business particularly leaders if you can don't look at a website and how. I think I'm reflecting on your point from earlier around when the leaders become inapproachable is that is the problem is when the problems begin to start. If someone asks to speak to a leader in the business and they're told actually no, you know, for whatever reason, no, you can't. How much should someone take that as a red flag? I mean, I, I, I know you're not giving a sort of binary response and never would. I'm just trying to help for our listeners, how much should they take that as a red flag versus these are just genuinely busy people? That's a great question, actually, because I haven't really thought about that. If, if, some, if that happened to me, and I, um, I'm, you know, if I'm honest, my memory sort of doesn't serve me well enough to know whether or, or readily put up an example. What I mean, to be honest, I met, you know, I think probably, you know, um, it was only towards the latter end when the firm was getting very big that I may not have been involved in the recruitment process. But if somebody had said to me, you know, if my... Um, 
my HR colleague had said, you know, X has said uh, they're absolutely up for joining, but the final part of their decision making is that they, you know, absolutely want to meet you as the MD before they go firm. Do you know what? I would give such a, a, a thumbs up to that. I mean, it would speak volumes for that person. Honestly, it would be such a positive reinforcement from my side of, of, you know, of what it says about that individual. I would love to have that conversation in the rare instance I wasn't anyway. So, you know, I think if, if you ask that question and you got the kind of, no, he's too busy to do it or he doesn't think it's appropriate, you know, you've, you've had a very, very interesting red flag on what that kind of organisation is like. So uh, you've, you've made a great point there, Nick. I hadn't thought about that. And I think you can read a lot from that. Fantastic. I think that's really helpful advice for, for my listeners. And so the, the second part of that question, I think we've, we've clarified how you can understand it from a values perspective of a firm fits. But if you're leaving a high-performing consultancy or you, you are in the upper quartile of a consultancy business and you want to make sure you move to somewhere where you're going to be working with similar level people, what can people do to assess that? Oh, it's, again, that's a, t- a challenging one. I guess um, you, would, you would get, I mean, again, you, you know, you're having the same similar kind of conversations, aren't you? So, you know, you're talking about values. You're also talk, you know, you, you, you're, I guess you're also trying to assess where these level, you know, where your potential future colleagues, you know, where they're working, um, uh, you know, of course, sort of validation of case study to the degree you can is going to be a an evidence point in that. Um, I, you know, I think you just you just want to have as many conversations as you can. I mean, you might even want to, you know, in a certainly circumspect way, you know, try and speak to some of the clients and and, and, and you know, just say, you know, I'm considering joining this organisation. You know, what what do you reckon? I mean. Uh, you know, if you if you want to sort of use your initiative that way, I guess at some point though, there's a, you know, you you, you take the risk, don't you? you? Cross the threshold and you see if your assessment is right. And having hired people, you you would have been on the sharp edge of this. How much of a risk is it for people to maybe make a bad step? And when I say bad step, I mean they go to a firm and actually after three months, six months, find it's not for them. Would you have looked negatively at someone like that? Would you have actually looked positively because they've tried i know you said with say entrepreneurism you would always look positively at that would it have been a similar case here you know say okay john has gone and tried that didn't work out understand it i think it would be you know really really would be case by case i mean i guess if you looked at somebody's uh, you know cv um and clearly we we, we looked at many over the years uh, you know and it was a sort of flip-flop every three six months you know over a period of five years you know clearly that would ring some alarm bells mm-hmm. i think if you saw one of those um, but everything else, you know, looked um, looked really strong. You just want to explore it, and if there was good validation of that, and you know, maybe it is say hypothetically value misalignment, and it was well articulated. I don't think you know you'd give it you know huge sway beyond that point. So I think mm. you know it's real case by case. But I, 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 I think what people do is they overprice the, the potential tax of that, and, and 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 not you know reap the benefit of grabbing an opportunity. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And it wasn't. A line of questioning I was thinking of going down actually, but it, it's something that's come out throughout this interview, for me at least implicitly to what you say, is you seem to have a very good internal drive for what you want. You wrote down your plan, you drove for it, you achieved it. I think there's sometimes, especially in the city, you know, I live in London, I work in the city, you, you see all the time that sort of that drive to keep up with the Joneses. Can I, I mean, it goes off on a bit of a philosophical point, this Nick, in a way, because, you know, again, a lot of people talk about, you know, 
success, don't they, inverted commas, and formulate kind of, you know, who, who, who would you say is successful? Frankly, I, I, I don't know how anybody can answer that question because I think the only definition of that question is one that is self, mm. uh, you know, delineated. And um, uh, if you've never listened to uh, A.J. Graylin before, you know, the, the, the uh, philosopher, humanist, you know, he, he, he talks about this beautifully. But fundamentally, you know, success is a conversation of self um, self statement and, and so you know all all you can do and all and the only way you can but measure is to have at least some self de definition for yourself yeah mm. and at least take the time and energy to sort of articulate a self definition and I talked about the you know people spend more time planning their summer holidays than, than they do I mean frankly probably people spend more time planning their next haircut than they than they do that <laughs> and, um, but if you've got some self articulation of that. You know, and in some frame which is hopefully holistic beyond work, then you know you're the only arbiter of mm. of, of, of of the other of the other part of it, and and probably uh, sorry we probably ended off of your starting point, but that jumped that jumped into my head as you were. I, th I think it's fascinating, and I, I, I'm going to go and look up AJ Grilling after after this podcast. So thank you for that. I think, like you say, to to bring us back to to the consulting part. We talked obviously about how people can assess for high for, uh, fit for high performance teams, and we've talked about how one can shape high performance teams from a leadership the top perspective. What if you're in a team? What say behaviours or what can you do to help make a team? Is higher performance the right phrase? I, I, I'm struggling there for the right phrase, but what what can you do in in the lower or middle grades to have a meaningful impact on how the team performs? Again, that's a really good question, looking at it almost the other way around from the place where I start, which is how the leaders sort of help inculcate that. And, and you know, because hopefully what the leaders have done is is recruited well and inherently have people that have, uh, you know, got a uh, inclination to behave in this way. So, you know, what you can do to to play a part of that as a member is, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's to be clearly hugely, you know, collaborative, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of at risk here of sort of going for a fairly trite sort of uh, set of attributes, but the kind of people you're looking for are those that are totally up for learning new skills. You know, the whole sort of growth mindset bit is really key. That's another great side reference, by the way. Is it Professor Dweck, isn't it? The sort of growth mindset book is a great book, um, which is, is, is a really powerful sort of reinforcement of the fact that, you know, we never, ever stop learning. And, you know, any social dynamic team you're in, you want to be off that ilk. It never stops learning. You know, if it's if it's seeking to be high-performing, it is pointing towards some place of excellence, but it has the humility to recognise it collectively never gets there. So you want people that carry that same mindset individually. Um, so, you know, growth mindset, never stop learning, hugely collaborative, and sense of humour, I would throw in there as well. I, I've never seen a team that has kind of got to a place where it's of, of you know, world class because it's full of professional earnest focus. You know, of course it does have professional focus, but, you know, God, life's too short. You know, have, have some fun en route. And, you know, I, it, for me, it's an amazing uh, and, and very fortunate coincidence of um, professional excellence with the complete uh, existence, deflation of any egos, and 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 you know, therefore, plenty of humour. No, I, th I think that's really good, Nat. I think humour is uh, is a key factor that is so little talked about. I think very often, like you say, you get the the other attributes and 
you know, we could list, I'm sure, a whole list of attributes that would be great for success. But that simple fact of enjoy, enjoy right. what you're doing. Just don't take yourself too seriously. I mean, you know, if, if, if you back to your original question, you know, to contribute to a high-performing team, don't take yourself too seriously. Take your profession unbelievably seriously. Recognize you'll never achieve full mastery. Keep working towards it. Brilliant. And I think to your point around the fact that that's maybe quite a, a, a hard question to answer, taking it from a sort of leadership and then flipping it on its head, like I think you successfully did. One thing, really some point advice for when you were running Morehouse, for the junior colleagues you had, I'd be interested if there was anything that you saw junior colleagues frequently do that held them back. Were there any specific behaviors, approaches, um, I don't know, even sort of ways they dealt with people or clients that that held them back from progressing? Oh, geez. Uh, I mean, that's a difficult one to answer with uh, in terms of commonalities because I think, you know, I guess it's sort of different different aspects with different people in, well, well, maybe. in many ways. But what, well, can, please continue if you if if it's uh, if it's answerable. I just would it maybe a better way is actually to focus on the positive and and say what for you at Morehouse separated the best from the rest. So what was it that your you know your sort of generals and lieutenants you were like yeah I'm so glad I hired them. What did they do differently that made you think of them like that? First and foremost, I think um, everything builds on the basis of. Um, the, the you know the core of what you're technically being asked by a client to deliver is done to a standard that is is just par par excellence is you know is is a sort of an exemplar sort of um, examples set so you know if that be I mean my game was sort of you know complex program management and you know therefore developing a lot of um, you know, intellectual products that helps define programs and business cases and sort of, you know, the organizational architecture of, you know, big, big, um, you know, change programs. You know, clearly that core product just needs to be, you know, done excellently. And I think in the early stages of any career, whatever technical craft you're delivering, you're just trying to, to, to get that core profession nailed, aren't you? So, you know, fundamentally, every, you know, no conversations I had beyond that de minimis. But on the basis, once you've got that, nailed and you know you genuinely and actually i go off on a little bit of a tangent here because i think this is germane to a lot of areas of consulting is um, the presentation of information i see it done so so badly um, but i think taking a real professional interest in how you render data information in a frankly beautiful way simple way that enables very, very busy clients to make, you know, the right decisions at the right time, you know, with the right information. And that's another side point, but, you know, guys like, um, what's his name, Edward Tuft and um, McCandless. And um, there's a great book, actually, was it? It is um, something like Show Me the Numbers by a guy called Stephen Few about, you know, the, the way you can present information. I, I, I think, you know, probably 80% of most professional service firms would benefit from a fixation on that topic because, you know, we're always rendering information for others who are paying, a, you know, paying us good money to do so. So, you know, I think often what goes is technical excellence in what you do, uh, you know, quite often packaged brilliantly. Those are kind of the key aspects of your, you know, of, of, of your craft. Can I just ask on the, on the packaging point particularly, I think sometimes consultants will be criticised for, let's say, over-packaging. Uh, there'll be a very whizzy slide deck, lots of graphics, nice boxes with limited information. How, maybe the answer is read the book you've just said, but 
how do you draw that balance between giving the client just the information, but in a sort of harsh looking way, if you like, compared to the best and prettiest slide deck that doesn't tell you anything? No, no, sure. You know, and it's a massive, it's a massive topic, Nick. And I would say having a professional sort of um, curiosity about the absolute expert proponents like those guys you just mentioned is the starting point. And then it's experience here. You kind of, you, you know, it's about being around a block and doing this a number of number of times. But, you know, tough to, I think, you know, he makes this great point about, you know, done well, it's about conveying the most amount of information with the least amount of ink, you know, on the, on, on the piece of paper. Um, there's that great, uh, again, we're going off on another tangent here, but he, tough tells a great story. I think it's somewhat, um, it's been it's been it's been uh, well played now over the years, but he talks about the um, the space shuttle um, disaster. Have you heard the story? Go on. Uh, what was it? it was a Challenger, wasn't it? From memory. And um, anyway, that uh, uh, you know really sad moment when I think it was about seven or eight astronauts lost, lost their lives, and that was that was uh, clearly in 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 post disaster. You know, debrief was kind of analysed to death. You know, what created that moment when they decided to sort of launch the Challenger. And you know, it went to Congress. You know, NASA would have poured over it. This is all basically what you know Tuft is, uh, uh, uses as his one of his case studies. And um, you know, what what came out in the in the analysis of before they pressed the go on that launch, you know, the kind of engineering committee that made the call had about four you know um, ring binders, you know, a foot deep on each of their desks on their committee table, and had to sort of wade through all of that information to essentially make the you know the go no go call. And Tuff says, you know, there was only one bit of paper in that pack that would have potentially given anybody any sort of salient input into that sort of decision. And it was a, it was a chart that was trying to get across that there was a correlation between, I think it was an O-ring that went on one of the rockets and temperature. But it had been presented in such a sort of obtuse way, you know, in sort of a clever, clever way, back to you mm. know, the overpackaging point, that nobody saw it. He then represents this one bit of paper out of the pack of you know four ring binders and just presents it in a really beautifully clean, simple way. I could give that chart to my 12-year-old daughter and say, would you launch the Challenger tomorrow? And she would have made the right call. And I think, you know, to be honest, it's partly about just educating yourself to all of the different ways that the people that do this craft really well have done it. And you just, you know, you learn by you learn by practice, don't you, and picking it up from others. So sorry, that was a shoot down a, a wide tangent. But um, but I think in a, a really useful one as well around, I think particularly, you know, in that anecdote, the point around binders, you know, we've all been there where people have colloquially referred to usually other firms' deliverables by the size of them. Um, and I think that is a key point, which actually goes through all of the themes, that instead of maybe staying till midnight, putting loads of supporting evidence in, let's say, the client just needs the one number about the you know the o-rings that's what they need no absolutely i, I tell you again danger of going off on another sub point but <laughs> is that um you know where lots of consultant firms are really really guilty is and not even on the engagement side but is trying to win work you know trying to um you know prospect for new business is this sort of turning up in the prospects office with a massively shiny kind of you know 50 page deck you mm. know, uh, slides and and actually we very quickly learned ourselves out of that and you know we would go from spending those late nights creating these crazily complex you know powerpoints that were essentially showing off to just essentially turning up in offices and listening <laughs> you know so even even you know not not talking about the work per se i think you know it, it, it's, it's a salient point there yeah de no, definitely so uh, continuing on that theme of of skills and i, I, yeah. I think you've obviously 
sort of one thing you highlighted is around your own personal development. And, and, and sorry, Nick, I'm sort of conscious by diving off on these tangents, there was a sort of uh, probably an unfinished journey there. Should I just finish that quickly before you take this up? So I think we talked about um, technical craft packaging. Sorry, you're quite right. What holds people back? I think, to be honest, thereafter, it, it, a lot of it's around the sort of the confidence, you know, and sort of communication skills. And, you know, I, I, there is a lot of um, confidence isn't there, in a professional services game. But, you know, a lot of it would, would be about encouraging junior colleagues that they absolutely had... The wherewithal to now, you know, because they were excellent at what they did, to speak to a client on on a, on a very you know peer like level, you know, mm. almost. Uh, I think a lot of people sort of get a little bit caught up in the differences in ages or life experiences, and you know, hold themselves back. And and some firm hierarchies um, reinforce that almost deliberately. You know, for us, it was a very flat structure. You know, if somebody was in a junior grade, but you know, could easily, you know, step to the next one. It, it was not a sort of time serve piece. We would say, no, the only thing that's holding you back now is, you know, you, 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 it's, it's self-talk. Go and you, you set up the meeting with the client. You, you know, pitch your idea. You know, we'll maybe be there on the shoulder for the first conversations, but, you know, it's about um, developing that side. And I think, you know, you just have to get out of your comfort zone, don't you, at as, as, as certain points in your career and make some mistakes and trip up and, yeah, you know, um, yeah. Just, just, just start the, just start that process. Uh, brilliant, and I think the interesting point that isn't talked enough about in consulting, or at least wasn't when when I was in it, is around the sort of impact that self talk has. Um, you know, the it's something that sports stars have done for a long time. It, this is a tangent, but I understand you were involved in the the Royal Marines um, delegation who talked to the two thousand and three England rugby team around. Yeah. how to respond in in battle if you like how to bring that to the field and the i imagine the self-talk that goes with that this is a massive tangent i just generally interested yeah, I mean, in that's it that's a, i mean uh, again um i was i was peripherally involved you know i was privileged so there's a guy called uh, nathan martin who, who ran it on our side actually i was just part of one you know one part of his, his team but that, <laughs> that was a fascinating exercise only in so much as um actually what woodward was really focused in on at the time was um uh, a point in, in in sort of military doctrine, which is called um, mission command, which was less about self-talk. It's more about, I guess, more about planning, really. Which is, you know, when you you set a plan, and then, you know, in the in the Marines, you know, you get off the boat, you get off the helicopter, and everything just goes completely to pot. <laughs> How do you still operate? And you know, Woodward wanted to take that metaphor onto the onto the playing field. You know, he gave his guys guidelines, but what he wanted was when everything broke down in front of them, they would still have that sort of self-leadership to, to to drive them through so you know essentially that was what that experience was trying to get across yeah. okay and as a rugby fan i'm a, there's, there's part of me that was just very interested in the whole thing but i think like you say maybe, maybe we talk about that after the podcast i think maybe this talks more to the self-talk element i think one thing about your career is you'll have ups and downs and i people tend to celebrate the ups again you know, we'll all see on LinkedIn that someone's got a new job, a new client, a new promotion. Yeah. We won't see. Somebody yeah. said to me, you're making, actually just, uh, somebody said to me yesterday, Nick, is, uh, talking about LinkedIn, they said, uh, if you look at everybody's profiles on LinkedIn, you'd think there wouldn't be any problems in the world, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's such fantastic CVs. Why is it still going so wrong? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. And you know, if you look at Facebook, everyone's permanently on holiday drinking margaritas on the beach. It's, um, but again, I think another topic that may, maybe we'll, we'll have a round two in the future and we can, we can talk all about these. Interested from a personal perspective for you, 
during your journey building Morehouse, were there any specific failures or what what was at the time an apparent failure that, that springs to mind to you? And how did that help you in the future? How did that maybe set you up for a later success with clients or internally with the firm? I feel I'm going to be guilty of, uh, it's, it's like the interview question, isn't it? You know, where's the, where was the sort of moment it all went wrong and you learned from? Um, I really hope this doesn't come across in a sort of, <laughs> it's too good to be true kind of way. So there are loads and loads of obviously moments where, you know, things don't go to plan and there's loads of moments of team dynamic. You kind of think, oh, that's not so great. How did we, how did we end up here? I think I, I struggle to sort of, you know, think of the one sort of, you know, crisp anecdote that, 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 that frames that. But um, yeah, maybe, the, you know, I think the broader point for me is is you just you just genuinely never get there you know the kind of the vibe we had both I, I you know I like to think I had it personally but it was the team vibe is you know we're shooting for the stars here this is the kind of place we want to play but let's have the humility to recognize we're a million miles away from it and we're <laughs> never going to we're never probably going to get there let's just try and keep stepping up the mountain um yeah sorry I'm slightly sidestepping a little bit but I haven't got the no that that's I think that there is a key point in there um, around humility, and again, it, it comes back to something that you've you've reinforced. And, you know, we've discussed a number of times around around putting success on a pedestal. I, I think I can't remember the book, but I really should find it. There, there was a quote I read that said that successful people maximize their one or two key strengths; they don't fix all of their weaknesses. And that for me was a really interesting concept because I think very often in society you look at a successful person and as you've said, you know, if you just assume they're great in every facet of their life, which maybe that isn't the case. You you've talked about the how you chose the asymmetry for the for the career. I think if we, we focus on the career bit specifically, firstly I think would you agree with that statement? So would you agree that successful people focus on maximizing their strengths instead of fixing their weaknesses? And then I, I guess the question is, if so, and this is the path you followed, how did you have that uh, humility to identify and accept those weaknesses? And what did you do to mitigate them? Maybe touching a little bit on the previous question as well, which is where things you know, kind of go wrong, you learn from, essentially. Um, pains to sort of emphasize that you know, lots of things did go wrong. But the, the, a key aspect for me on that is back to this point about having critical friends you know, on, mm. in the room and the external advisors. So... You know, there, there were many moments, I, you know, just give you one where, um, you know, one of the advisors, uh, the guy called Paul Collins, actually is a, is a, is a very well-known um, guy in the industry. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of Paul, but he was a, he was a great non-exec on our board early days. You know, he sort of pointed out with regards to, for example, um, our business development, you know, so, um, you know, myself and, and, and I think one other at the time and a senior colleague, um, a guy called Paul, who was mercurially gifted at, at, at lots of things, including selling... And, you know, and, and, and Paul Collins said, um, you know, it, you guys are good, but, you know, to be honest, you probably neither of you know how you're selling work. You know, it's just idiosyncratic kind of yeah. <laughs> circumstance and happenstance. You, you know, you need to be much more systematic about it. And that's your blind spot now. For this point in the journey, that's your blind spot now, is you do not know how to systematically develop a business development capability across your wider team, because you probably don't even know how you do it. And it was absolutely spot on. And that was another kind of inflection point in the, in the company. And, you know, so I guess the point I'm making here is that, you know, there are constant, not so much mistakes, but there are constantly gaps in your, in your knowledge. And, you know, if you're full of hubris, um, 
you know, you, you miss those. And I think if you kind of go into it with a kind of, I'm never going to quite know enough, and I've got a lot of wise people on my shoulder who are going to point it out to me, you know, you, you, they, they help you spot them. That, you know, it's coming back to the question before. And back to playing to your strengths and sort of, you know, addressing your weaknesses. Um, uh, you, you, the, was it Warren Buffett makes a great sort of little ditty, isn't it, about um, he spoke to some guy who was trying to choose his next steps. And he said, well, you know, write down the, the, the 10 aspects that you think, you know, you want to focus on and you're good at. And, and the person did. He said, you know, what's your number one? He said, yeah. he said go for it. He said, well, what I do with two to 10 is we'd rip them up, throw them away. The key bit is A, playing to strengths, but not getting distracted by the, yeah. you know, two to 10 on the, on the list, which um, again is a slightly sort of cliched anecdote from Warren Buffett. But uh, yeah, you, you, you get the point. I think almost focus what you're great at, not what you're good at. Is yeah. The, the no, summary? Well, yeah, yes and no, really. Because I think. Um, I think there is definitely, uh, I think there's a lot to be said for generalists. And I think, you know, we sort of slightly overplay the sort of, um, you know, we're only going to be excellent in, you know, one particular aspect. I think, you know, you clearly want to know the three, four, five things that you have a good chance of being, um, you know, in the top 5% at if you if you work really hard, you know. And that doesn't mean 10,000 hours necessarily. I mean, you know, because you can get to the top 5% just by, you know, real sort of dutiful application of them, you know, if you've got some natural leaning. Um, so yeah, of course, you know, play to your broad strengths. Um, don't get uh, totally bog-eyed by that. And then, and then, you know, weaknesses. I think it's just back to the critical friends point. Having people that can point it out, and you, you know, surrounding yourself by people that are frankly more talented than you. I mean, that's the great hiring <laughs> rubric. Yeah, I mean, put people in the room that frankly you know, make you look daft and, you know, kind of show up your kind of technical skills because, you know, it's only when you become the sort of slightly kind of insecure leader that fears the sort of exposure of that, that you, you know, you, you create this very stifling kind of, you know, very personality dominant cultures. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so uh, yeah, high people, more talented you, critical friends. Fantastic. No, thank you, Dom. So, I think we've covered some really interesting areas for, for people and advice for themselves. Keen to actually touch on what you're doing now. So obviously, you, you mentioned you sold Morehouse, you've been involved in a number of ventures, and I think you, you've recently launched the Public Beta Method Grid. Could you tell, tell my listeners a, a bit more about what that is, what you're trying to do with it and its goal? Yeah, no. Um, well, thank you for the opportunity to do that. So uh, yeah, I guess this conversation has come out of the fact, you know, I both sit on boards and, you know, as I've mentioned, run run annual events. You know, I've probably spoken, you know, I, it will be in the hundreds of, 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 of businesses, you know, since I've, um, uh, you know, stepped out of Morehouse. And, uh, you know, I, I'm often talking about, you know, clearly the, the journey to a growth point, you know, how you build value in a professional service company, the different aspects of that. Uh, and one aspect is pretty key is that of intellectual property and developing, you know, codified methodology, intellectual property that builds value in your business and and, and you know for, for a number of reasons one um, if you're serious about growing you know it's a kind of reference point you need to a ensure that your team deliver a service consistently um, it's how you might induct somebody into your team so you get them up and running and, and generating revenues for you as quickly as possible you know you can organize wider firm CPD around it you can win more work I mean you know I am um, I talk about this at my events often, which is, you know, when I was pitching for work at Morehouse, we would often be up against the big guys. And, you know, essentially I would say to clients or prospective clients, I'd say words along the lines of, um, 
you know, that we're here claiming specialism, but so will clearly the bigger guys, the multidisciplinary firms. You know, you, Mr. or Mrs. Client, need to validate that. And the way you can validate that is to, you know, ask us to show you our methodologies and our toolboxes, and you can see who's invested more time and energy in that. And, and, you know, and clearly they often did. And I knew whenever they did, you know, we had a real fighting chance of winning the, of the work because, you know, having held from these bigger guys, sometimes they, it's overplayed, yeah? I mean, it's a bit of a marketing sort of piece sometimes. And, you know, so whilst they could throw out a PowerPoint slide deck or, or two, you know, if the client pressure tested it, you know, we were able to open up a massive toolbox, which we had, you know, spent a lot of time architecting the interface for. It was just a, you know, close to sort of two million pounds worth of, people you know time went into that uh, over the years and, and and it would knock their socks off you know and i think it demonstrated we had manifest expertise and we could sort of you know position our brand at a premium level when we win work and then finally you know if you ever get to sell a business um you know it's 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 a huge component of a external purchaser's assessment of your value so anyway, I'll go off on tangent there. For all those reasons, you know, that's a great uh, way of building value into a business. And of course, you know, you talk to sort of bright, um, you know, intelligent owners and they get that point. And what really struck me, this is going back about two years ago, is how few people knowing that point actually get to ever meaningfully do anything more than have the one or two, uh, you know, PowerPoint slides or, you know, badly organized Dropbox and SharePoint. And it just occurred to me a couple of years ago, a bit as a bit of an intellectual kind of uh, muse, really, that maybe there was a platform that would facilitate. And uh, if I'm, I, I reflected a little bit, going back to that Transport for London story, which, you know, ha, ha, we were really lucky. That was mm. a great first gig. You know, it enabled me to intellectually kind of grapple with how you get methodology across to large audiences and, and organizations. So, you know, I was intellectually in that space. And when we came back, you know, and actually, you know, I say we were fortunate. We had a great first year of trading. We had some money to invest in things like an internal system. I got a couple of IT guys in and they spent, you know, three months sort of building it out. I think, you know, that, that was super graced and, um, uh, you know, that doesn't happen to everybody. So I just thought maybe there's a platform that can facilitate. Anyway, that is a very long-winded answer, Nick, to your question. That's what gave uh, Gestation to Method Grid. It's a... Um, it's a platform by which we hope people can very, very quickly, literally within the first five minutes of opening an account, get off and start building, you know, very rich um, you know, procedures and methodologies. Brilliant, Dom. Thank you very much. And I'll put the link to that in the show notes, along with uh, your personal website, which I know is where you have a lot of the information around your retreats and the blog series and guides that you do as well. So I'm, I'm very conscious of your time, and I know I know you've got to run to a call. So. I just wanted to finish with a couple of, of quick fire questions. <laughs> and it, with these, it might be that the answer is things we've covered, but I'm, I'm keen to ask it in this way, just to see, see if, it, um, if it changes the answer at all. So first one, and I'm being a bit cheeky here because it's sort of a three in one. If you had three people in front of you, so you had one who was just about to enter consulting, you had one who was... Let's say where you were was a manager level, so sort of four to five years into consulting, and maybe one who is approaching the the point of acquiring some equity in a firm. So be it you know someone at I guess you'd call it a director level across the board. If you had to to give a a one liner to each or one very you know short piece of advice to each, what what would it be? So new joiner, I would say, if I'm being really honest, you know, maybe you should go and do something else before you get into consulting and have a bit of a backstory. Think about it at least, because you know, Struve, I kind of, 
I'm glad I did something completely different in my 20s. You know, I think it's almost a bit sad to lock down into corporate life too early. But, you know, I, 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 no, that's a glib answer. I think, you you uh, probably got, have more stories from yeah, uh, your time. Yeah, than, no, yeah, that's a glib answer. But I think, um, you know, probably not to be taken too seriously. But uh, if you're setting out, frankly, um, back to that team question, really, just, you know, don't take yourself too seriously. Kind of massive growth mindset on, you know, keep a smile on your face. And, uh, um, you know, don't, 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 don't be afraid to sort of... Um, chippy seniors in the firm and, and sort of make it known that you know you've got ambition and you want to sort of uh you know you want to sort of understand what they're doing at their level don't you know don't feel you sort of don't box yourself down too early but yeah frankly don't take too life too seriously <laughs> um yeah four or five years in um yeah i would say you know maybe you are sort of starting to think about is this me for a full career in this organization or maybe you know do i have an entrepreneurial itch um you know i'd just say you know look out look uh, look, look read you know listen to nick's blogs down the line and um you know just kind of frame some of those bigger questions because they're going to start coming up on your career aren't they and then if you're at a point of taking equity in a business i guess you're at a real fork in the road it's either you know you're going to do that or you're going to set off and do it yourself so you know be really clear if you if you're going off on the um on the internal journey you you you're aligned to the values of that organization and you're going to enjoy it. You know, mm. frankly, it's back to the, some of those broader points. Um, yeah, otherwise, uh, come on my retreat. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot for that, Dom. And so, so very last question. And I think we've covered a veritable library of books across uh, the podcast already. Certainly some titles I'm going to go and look up that I've not heard of before. If, or I think the best way to ask this is, what books do you or did you, when you were running Morehouse, find yourself recommending most to people? And I'll let you take people how you want, be it people starting a, a consulting business, be it people wanting to get into health and fitness, being uh, it could be people who are looking on how to balance their career and relationships. I think it's which books do you find yourself recommending most to people? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, and actually broader point, I, I, we sort of got off on a few tangents about sort of exercise and sleep and so forth, but reading it, you know, is an absolutely, um, I, I'd, I'd really strongly, um, you know, encourage the habit. I actually, you're not a random tangent, but um, when I was, you know, I'm, I'm, I come from a big family, I wanted seven children and I can kind of remember, you know, when I was probably about 11, 12 years old, my father coming back one time and, you know, he was a builder and we were all watching telly, you know, children's TV and he came back, you know, home from work and said, good evening, children. We just gave him a cursory nod and went back to watching whatever we were watching on telly and, and, it, and it was a straw on his back, you know, and he just basically walked over, picked the TV up, walked it out of the house. <laughs> we watched him from the window in horror as he gave it away to, you know, a lady who lived down the road and I never had the TV for the rest of my, my childhood. Wow. So, um, you know, I... I, I I mean, at the time, obviously, I thought it was horrendous, but, you know, it made me read. And I, I think um, I'm so grateful for my father for, in, you know, introducing that uh, in a rather forcible way to me. But, uh, you know, so reading generally, I must be encouraged, not necessarily just, you know, just, just professional, because I think, uh, you know, often you glean huge amounts from sort of um, reading broad, much more broadly. I love philosophy. I, you know, like I mentioned I've sort of recently finished a, a, a sort of an open university degree in that. So I'm often finding myself often philosophical dalliance and you know Seneca and sort of stoical stuff etc but um work-wise I would say uh, some uh, three good great books uh, I mentioned Maester earlier I mean that is an absolute classic if you haven't read that and you're thinking of you know building a professional service firm or you're involved in one it's a, it's a bit of a timeless classic 
Um, not necessarily then because it's a much, uh, these books are just the sort of pulling out of my more short-term memory. Um, you know, the, the, the productivity, when I mean, we haven't really kind of spent much time talking about that, but, you know, just um, getting things done. Um, David Allen, is it from memory? He just talks about this sort of GTD methodology. And again, you know, a lot of it is is, is fairly straightforward. You know, it's not particularly clever, but, you know, I think, you know, a lot of uh, what it means to be successful Certainly professional services is, you know, hugely just, you know, output and, and, you know, having horsepower and being able to put, you know, 16 hours of work into, a, you know, a 10-hour day, you know, frankly, would be the summary of consulting life wouldn't it? and, and uh, getting things done. I, I read it twice, actually. It was only on the second reading. I thought, no, that is, that 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 works. And it, I, I've really put that into my sort of daily routine now. Um, and I guess another one, which is just on the sort of more the health one is I read a, well, I've mentioned the sleep book, Why We Sleep, I think it was called, but the, the one that I also read recently was called The Primal Blueprint. Okay. And it's just a, you know, again, about eating, uh, you know, and there's nothing in it that's particularly complicated. It's just, you know, just really wrong true for me, you know, getting your nutrition sorted out and, you know, how just simple exercises and, and, and sort of, uh, you know, movement regimes can sort of really, uh, can work. Great. Really good recommendations. Like you say, on top of all of, all of the other great recommendations you've given during the podcast. Dom, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you very much for coming on to the show. Uh, as you said there, there, there's so many topics we didn't touch, um, but I think we've, we've really hit on some great stuff for, for my listeners and people who are either thinking about starting their own consultancy or just want to understand how those who do it well can so they can emulate it themselves. If people want to reach out to you or find out more about you, where can they do it? Is your is your personal website the best place? Uh, yeah, no, it, it probably is. So yeah, dommorehouse.com, all one word. Um, and then yeah, the Method Grid platform, which uh, is still in free beta. If you want to give it a go, is it's just methodgrid, all one word, .com as well. And uh, just to say, Nick, huge thanks. It was uh, I really enjoyed the chat, and uh, I, I believe I'm one of the early ones in your series. So I just wish you every success. I think it deserves to be a, a knockout hit. Oh, thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.